do this one last time. My name is Petrus Bertsilivus. I was bitten by the podcast bug for the last four years. I thought I was the one and only Nicolas Cage podcast. I'm pretty sure you know the rest. I watched a load of Nick Cage films, recorded some episodes, watched some more, then recorded some more again, again, and again. I had a completely different format and theme song. Cornell, Lord of War, The Wicker Man, Trespass, and so many more. We don't really talk about that. I took two years off, recorded a rap song. Reptile, fresh Listerine, I'm so clean. Nice to the eyes, polish up like Mr. Sheen. Had a kid, stopped watching Nick Cage films. That really felt like sweet relief. I did a lot of nothing and then a global pandemic hit. So I decided it was about time to come back. I've since realized there's tons of Nick Cage podcasts. They seem to pop up quicker than it takes for Cage to sign on to 10 new projects. But no matter how many times Cage knocks me down, whether it's a Bangkok Dangerous or a Left Behind, I always get back up. Because the only thing that can find out is Nick Cage the actor to get your spidey senses tingling or cause severe arachnophobia is this. There's only one caged in and you're listening to it. Nicolas Cage is an actor who is not adverse to a comic book adaptation. From starring as the Ghost Rider, Big Daddy and voicing Superman. This episode, however, we're looking at Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Directed by Bob Perichetti, Peter Ramsey, and Rodney Rothman. To make sense of all this multiverse madness, I'm once again joined by David Trumbull. How are you doing, David? Hey, man. So good to be back. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it felt like talking about a massive uh, animation-like milestone in Nicolas Cage's career. Mm. Uh, it would be a shame not not to have you back, man. And just have a, a joyous time because this is, uh, I think, I, I don't know about your opinion. Well, but... let's be honest here. Yeah, we're not going to bury the lead. This this movie is, you know, we're not going to beat about in the bush. This is the fucking goat of, of animated movies. In, and it's probably the best thing he's done in in recent years, Cage. You know, like, I mean, th- this would probably top a lot of people's lists on Letterboxd of, like, you know, uh, the best Nick Cage movies. And and it, it's it's astonishing because... I checked, and he's he only shows up in this movie about an hour in, mm-hmm. and he's only in the movie for about five and a half minutes, and yet it's a very, very pleasing, indelible performance, and, and it's one of his best. One of the things I saw whilst doing research for this is um, interviews with like the directors and stuff like that, mm. and there's an amazing, I guess it would have been on the Blu-ray or DVD, there's mm. this kind of featurette about the vocal recording sessions, and it's yeah. got like clips of Nick Cage doing it, and apparently one day uh, Rodney Rothman turned to him and said, "Like, yeah, could you give us some? Could you like a bit more?" And he, uh, like, Nick Cage turned round and said, "Oh, you want the full cage?" Yeah, and, like, the infamous full cage. Yeah, so he's like self-aware enough to know like what people want from him, and he delivers it in this, per- like this this perfect kind of like um, noirish performance. He and you, you see he's yeah channeling those the, the old guard of that absolutely time. and 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 weirdly it doesn't feel like stunt casting because the the casting of this movie is so on point but it's just like if you're going to make a movie and you're going to have nick cage in it um use him wisely and this movie i think uh, perfectly plays to his strengths whilst at the same time giving us kind of a version of cage that we don't really expect i wasn't actually prepared 
for the kind of performance he gives because it's actually by cage standards one of his most restrained and he has in my opinion we'll get to it later in the pod but like some of the most uh, emotional moments like uh, with with the extreme restraint in yes. in in his vocal performance and it's only a couple of lines cuz he he's relegated to a very uh, side character he's more like the c story if you could call it that of of this very very loaded feature <laughs> but uh, but for being what he is my goodness does he deliver and and uh, it's 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 like a warm blanket to wrap yourself around in this sort of like this sort of abyss of recent cage output you know what i mean yes. like you know it's okay he's still my cage i think like there's a kind of one two punch of animation he's been doing recently this and like teen titans go to the movies which like hmm. Kind of like, I don't know, play in a similar sandbox in that they're both very like referential, like animate, like animated films that are, are for kids, but at the same time have something for everyone. Um, yeah, well, we touched upon this in my last yeah. episode, which was the, the idea that he's now become a meme. He's become uh, <laughs> uh, greater than the sum of his parts. He is now Nicolas Cage, the actor, and just Cage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's something to be celebrated. But it's also great that they gave him a role in this movie that that feels that feels like a, a another like another feather in his cap. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's it's not like they got him in there and made him you know wig out crew mm -hmm. style. They 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 sort of had fun with it, and and it it also sort of like even though it's kind of like a slightly uh, sort of like alternative kind of cage performance. It's still totally in keeping with his romanticized desire to sort of like borrow from great performances of old. You know, he's he's kind of like a student of acting. He loves, yes. you know, like, I mean, he'll talk about some of his most out there performances as being like channeling the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and, you know, like classic um, surrealist films and things like that. Like, like he he's a super fan of old cinema. So the idea that he's like, hey, I could do this as Humphrey Bogart, basically, yes. you know, and just... And, and and had a reasoning behind what he was doing in the same way that he did that Adam West voice in in Kick-Ass. You yes. know what I mean? Like he he always has like a, a reason for what he's doing. And so even when it's a subtle thing like this, weirdly animation gives him such a great platform in a way that sometimes live action doesn't. Yeah, totally agree with you on that point. Before we get down the rabbit hole of just kind of loving on Spider-Verse too much, um, obviously I asked you three questions at the beginning of last episode. Yeah. And I can't ask you them again because that would be boring podcasting. Uh, exactly. But be obviously, problem I have anyway. I pose. Yeah, I've got uh, three new questions for you, which are: What is your favourite Nick Cage performance? Not necessarily mm. his best film, but that performance yeah. he gives in a film. I'm gonna have to stick with what I think I I think I mentioned it offhand in the last pod, but I'm gonna have to stick with it and reiterate on it, which is just. Uh, him as Caster Troy in Face Off. You know, I can uh, eat a peach for hours. And and not even him as not even him as Sean Archer portraying Caster Troy in Face Off. Like literally just the first fifteen minutes of Face yeah. Off. Because in those fifteen minutes, I mean, like it, it's ironic because Cage said that he took the role because he wanted to play the hero. He wanted to play the Sean Archer part of the story. He plays all the the tortured sadness and, and and the tragedy of him uh really well and like he's fantastic in the whole movie him, him and travolta are a perfect synergy of like 90s action cool yeah you know in, in that movie but because he's only going to be the villain for 15 minutes because it's almost like he's the pressure of, of of being that character the whole way through is kind of taken off you just get this sense above all that he's just having a whale of a time 
playing this absolute shit for like this really brief window. And because of that, because he's so untethered, it's the most jiffable of all of his performances. It's just like the, like pretty much any line he has yeah. in those first 15 minutes is now a gif or a, a mean. And and it's it makes me so um um I don't know. I feel like from the church, like 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 the, the sort of hallelujah bit, like and, yeah. and then right on through to the you know the sort of balletic dance that he and Travolta do with their guns when they're when they're staring each other down and and, and talking in each other's face. It's just a masterclass in 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 hamming it up, but going just so close to the edge, but never falling off. You know, yeah. you, you love that character, and he he does such a good job. In fact, that when Tra- when Travolta is essaying that performance brilliantly, you still think of Nicolas Cage. Yeah, you're not you're not even seeing Travolta. It's a testament to how good Travolta is in the movie playing him, but it's just also a testament to the to the, the the groundwork that Nick Cage sort of so effortlessly lays down in that first like 15 minutes and it's just a joyous performance i mean joyous is the word for it i mean it, it was the first nicholas cage role um i'd seen the rock already so i already knew of, of of who he was i thought he was fantastic as stanley goodspeed he played a really lovely nerdy good guy but then in in face off it just like he was just having such a bore i just wanted to be caster troy <laughs> i wanted to be the like he made being the bad guy look so fun which is like the the job of any good bad guy yeah, even yeah, if yeah. you're supposed to be rooting against them even if they're the heel you still want to enjoy being like bad for a few minutes and yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you get to live vicariously through the sort of like evil psycho horny mastermind that is Caster Troy. And so, yeah, like the, I mean, I, I, I tried to give it, you know, do my due diligence, think back to other performances. It has to be Caster Troy, I'm sorry. It's an no. easy one, but, you know. Don't apologize at all. And like, to elaborate on your point of it being like super fun, like to, to especially to watch, it looks like the cage is having fun. I'm not sure if you've ever seen, there's a fantastic clip that kind of now and then does the rounds on the internet, mm. but it's like, Cage really going for Travolta and like strangling him at one moment. Oh yeah, during the scene where Travolta reveals himself as Caster. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like they um it's like it's a, obviously a take that didn't get in. And it's like when they when they shout cut, like Cage is there going like, did I, did mm. I go too did I go too far, John? And like mm. Travolta's just laughing and like <laughs> they look like they'd had so much fun making it. Yeah. It's a synergy that I don't think you could even re recapture now. I think the te- like the best way to describe it is that think of Face Off as a '90s action movie that you're casting before you've cast these two actors. Think about if you had cast, even if you had just cast John Travolta and Christian Slater in those two roles, it wouldn't be the same. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's his best performance. Like it's just that casting transforms the movie for me. Perfect. Uh, the next question is: I don't want to be massively negative, so mm-hmm. that we don't have to dwell on this one too much, but. What is the worst Nick Cage film you've ever seen? Well, that's where you're in luck. We don't have to go too negatively because I have a built-in defense mechanism around <laughs> actors I like that I have a pretty good radar for seeing a trailer and being like, that's going to be a pile of shit. I'm, not, I'm just not going to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I just, so, so there is like, like the, unfortunately now, like probably what represents the majority of his filmography, I've probably not watched. I probably yeah. managed to avoid like the plague um and that's not to say that he's not an amazing actor which he is just that he makes a lot of movies and therefore a lot of them are going to be not as great as as, as the standouts yeah, yeah yeah yeah. so so actually the, the worst nicholas cage performance i've seen is still pretty good but it's just it's just it, you know like 
trying to think about what makes a bad Nicolas Cage performance. Like, it would be tempting for me to say The Wicker Man, but because I, I, I know you just watched it the other day, but, and, and obviously everyone likes to point to it, it's, it's as memeable and chippable as, as Castor Troy, but for the exact opposite reasons. And I, you know, I, I cannot deny it is objectively not a good performance. That being said, it's not my least favorite because there's, even then, as I believe you stated once, he still has a go. He still gave yeah. it a shot. He still did stuff that was in, in, interesting and maybe unintentionally entertaining <laughs> as fuck. And so, so it, the bad cage for me is lazy cage. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's what's unforgivable for me. If you're someone who can hit such glorious highs, the, the, the sort of like roles where you look like you're just cutting the check or, or where you just look like you're tired and you just yeah. you don't have an, a, a take, that that always feels like unforgivable for me. And um, like I said, I've avoided most of his uh, sort of like straight to DVD kind of like films or, or movies that just any movie that has a, an egregious poster. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I think the worst one for me, um, being honest, it's probably knowing uh, the movie mm-hmm. knowing. Um, and that's still that's still not a terrible movie, and he's not terrible in it but he just doesn't have anything new to do with that character. He doesn't, yeah. he's playing a professor. And I was thinking like professor cage would be really cool. You know what I mean? Like, like he could have played that really idiosyncratically. He could have found something. He could have found some nugget to, 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 to breathe more life into that character, but he's basically just reacting to special effects all the way through yeah. the movie and looking stricken uh, uh, increasingly. And he, even in that movie, he still has a pretty good tearful goodbye with his son. It's just the least, engaged performance i've ever seen from him and the others i've just avoided <laughs> yeah i have a thing that I, I say quite often which is like the ones that are most disappointing are the films where he he turns up but doesn't show up if yeah. that makes sense yeah. it's like the thing like and it is it yeah, is so those awful. the films you like the kind of like what you alluded to and the kind of films it's it's either a terrible poster or it's like any film that has to use Academy Award winner Nicolas Cage. Like normally I'm like, <laughs> that, that's your selling point. And I, 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 like, I wish I could avoid this with a 10 foot stick, but I've made my bed. And I've got, I've got, I've got to lay there with any cage. Anytime, anytime the cover does protest too much, essentially. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Looking desperate, man. And the final one, we kind of get to, you get to play uh, casting director here. Yeah. Living or dead, which director would you have loved or would you love to see Nick Cage work with? Okay, so this one might be a surprising one. I don't know. It depends, like, like what your opinion of this guy is because he's, you know, he's, he's, he's a guy who's also had an interesting and uneven career but for me i thought about a bunch of director combos and the one that kept coming back to me weirdly was peter jackson because so so peter jackson in lord of the rings especially demonstrates this amazing ability to cast new actors but also actors who've been around for a long time like christopher lee and mckellen um you know and even in the hobbit like you know people like uh, sylvester mccoy like he, he does really cool left field casting choices and they all seem to play really well and and uh jackson has a goofy like a cinematic but also just like an incredibly sort of quirky quality to him that lends itself to actors who like to go out onto the edge you know you can tell he's a very fun actor's director you can tell he's just a very fun director in general people love working with him and i'm not even talking about you know post lord of the rings peter jackson imagine something like the frighteners or brain dead 
or or yeah. uh, or even like bad taste. Imagine like the sort of splatter film Peter Jackson that mm-hmm. uh, that is clearly always a part of even the big Hollywood version of Peter Jackson. You know, the guy who just likes weird uh, penile looking worms with teeth. You know, the guy who's <laughs> just like obsessed with like the gnarliest thing you could possibly put on screen. Part of me wants to see Nick Cage, an actor of, of, of his sort of dynamism and fun, team up with Peter Jackson on an old school splatter horror. Perfect. Well, like weirdly, Cage at one point was going to be Aragorn in Holy Lord shit. of the Rings. Uh, wow. It was kind of like last minute like casting change that it went to, I think it went to someone else. It went to someone else. I think it went to some guy who who was lost out on several big roles. I think it's maybe it was Charlize Theron's, Theron's husband at a time. See, that's how that's how obscure he's fallen in, 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 yeah, <laughs> in yeah. his fame. We only know him as that. I think, yeah, like I, I always see these like any article that pops up that like I'm, I get mm. sent all the time. And one of them was like cage roles that he kind of never got, mm. whether it's like he was supposed to be Scarecrow in yeah. uh, the like the final Joel Schumacher. His crazy eyes would have made him a fantastic <laughs> Scarecrow. If it was directed by like the guy who directed Mandy or something, mm-hmm. imagine that Scarecrow. That oh, would have yeah, been yeah. terrifying. Yeah, and that like, but, but him as Aragorn, just like a mm. lot of people now laugh at it because they, but then that would have been like really like, People tend to forget that would have been like really bankable Cage at that time. Yeah, back then he was a draw. But also, like, th- think about it. Like, like Cage is, is is an actor who who you kind of have a certain expectation from. But um, but I believe you said it yourself um, when you re- reviewed the the Sorcerer's Apprentice mm-hmm. that, that Cage has long been wanting to do magic. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, like he wanted to do something kind of like. Uh, like throwing hexes around and doing stuff, and he actually does a pretty good job in that movie, even though that movie is like a so-so movie. He does sell the like uh, uh, holding special effects in the palm of his hand, kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and like you know, I would have killed to have seen him play like he would have made a great Radagast the Brown. He would have made a great like wizard, some kind of weird uh, sort of Maya spirit kind of character with a with a crazy eye. You know, that would have been perfect for him. Yeah, in that time, in case maybe not Aragorn, but one of the other more sort of gnarly characters, he'd be amazing. In that time in Cage's career as well, what those films went into production like late nineties, probably like yeah, they took like, years but... to come out. So that would have been like off the back of Face Off and stuff like that. So that would have been when he was like at the height of his powers. And I think like when people obviously read these articles where stuff gets leaked over years, they think Wicker Man Nick Cage. They think like next uh, Nick Cage in in Lord of the Rings, but it's like. It would have been a totally different beast. I'm not saying it should have happened because Viggo mm. Mortensen is fantastic. Oh, he's, he's perfect, he, he, he is Aragorn. This day we fight! Basically. Men and women's <laughs> awakening. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You know, like there's, there's two types of women in the world. The one who like Legolas and the ones who like Aragorn. Perfect. Um, one more than the other, clearly. You know. <laughs> so let's talk about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah. Gotta go. If you want me to drive you, we gotta go now. I walk. Personal chauffeur going on. It's okay. Seriously, Dad, walking would have been fine. Breaking news. Spider-Man saves the day again. Spider-Man. This guy swings in once a day. Zip, zap, zap, Nancy. Accountability. Speed up, speed up. I know these kids. Yo, Miles, man, you get arrested? Guys, don't cops run red lights? Well, yeah, some do. But, uh, not your dad. In your universe, there's only one Spider-Man. 
But there is another universe. It looks and sounds like yours, but it's not. My name is Miles Morales. Hey, kid. You're like me. How? I knew my day would come around this time. I know it's complicated. Just had to get my soul to free my mind. You want to know what happened to you? I can teach you to be Spider-Man. Mm, I love this burger. So delicious. Mm, one of the best burgers I've ever had. You have money, right? I'm not very liquid right now. I think you're going to be a bad teacher. How am I supposed to save the whole world? You can't think about saving the world. You have to think about saving one person. One thing I know for sure, don't do it like me. Do it like you. I see the spark in you. It's amazing. Hands up! Whatever you choose to do with it, you'll be great. I love you, Miles. Yeah, I know, Dad. You gotta say I love you back. Dad, are you serious? I wanna hear it. You wanna hear me say it? I love you, Dad. You're dropping me off out of school? I love you, Dad. Look at this place. Dad, I love you. Dad, I love you. That's a copy. Time to swing, just like I taught you. When did you teach me that? I didn't. It's a little joke for team building. Hey, guys. Okay, who are you? I'm Gwen Stacy. Come on. How many more spider people are there? Save it for Comic-Con. What's Comic-Con? Let's go! I was telling you off mic, but, like, this is a movie. I've done a little bit of research because I always like to come a bit prepared, but this is a movie that, let's be honest, you could talk about it for five hours and you still wouldn't have covered everything uh, that, that you can say about this movie technologically, artistically, uh, in terms of its comic book deep cuts, you know, its cinematic language. And then even like, like we could do three podcasts and not even mention cage. That's how yeah. crazy good this movie is. So it's, it's weird because it's like, it, it, it's going to be a joy to talk about, but also it's going to kind of a bit of a, bit of a fearful challenge challenge for me because it's, it's always more interesting to talk about a movie when you can be analytical to it. But like part of me was worried that I was going to come on the podcast and it would be like, Oh, and this bit's great. Oh, and isn't this bit great? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. And this bit's really great too. <laughs> it would just become repetitious. That's the thing. Like, in, like one of the things I kind of wanted to do with this one is talk somewhat about the plot. And uh, would, do you feel comfortable in kind of giving us a, a, a plot synopsis? Like, Kind of yeah, sure. Which so, I mean, like, I mean, one of the things that um, I d definitely do want to talk about, um, you know, being a story artist working in animation, mm -hmm. is is that um, you know we'll touch upon some of the uh, incredible innovations that that, that you know, they brought to this movie. Like the, yeah. the this is a movie that has its toe firmly dipped in both the old and the new uh, when it comes to animation and filmmaking and even sort of comic books and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's 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 a f fantastic film thematically. Um, even in the way it was made, everything's been tailored to to make it uh, uh, on point. But but the thing I'm most interested in talking to you about is kind of uh, the story beats and the story decisions because obviously oh. that's my profession. And animation is an incredibly stressful job. Like it's it's basically the way story uh, works is that we make the majority of our mistakes before we start making the film. We we do them in the storyboards. We, we basically cut the whole movie together into uh, a reel and then we screen it for uh, our team and we screen it for the executives and then we we look at it and we go okay well that that worked that worked that didn't work that didn't work that didn't work go back and fix it we go away for another couple like three months 
creates an entirely new reel, an almost entirely new movie, you know, like, like basically boarded the whole thing again. Then we screen that, and then we do that over and over again, sometimes three or four, even five times before the movie gets locked, and then it goes into production. And, and so, you know, I mean, uh, uh, the mark of a bad uh, animated production is if you're still changing the plot whilst you're animating, but like mostly you make your mistakes in the story process in pre-production. That's why it's got an overly long pre-production. And then, and then uh, we start phasing in production as we as we finalize the cut. You know, you know the, the the scenes you're most happy with kind of go into production first. You know, the ones that you know are going to be the bedrock. You know, that's not going to change. Um, the assets aren't going to be dicked around with or whatever. Um, and 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 so that's why if you get a movie where you suddenly change a character completely uh, at, at the eleventh hour, it could ruin the whole thing. Um, and so Spider-Verse is a movie where obviously they spent an, an awful lot of time on this movie and consequently on the Blu-ray you can actually watch, because it's a movie about a multiverse, they, they've actually created a cut of the movie that is using a, a bunch of the sequences that didn't make it and they call it like the alternative dimension version of the cut. Yeah. So you actually get to see just the amazing amount of story work that went into it and, and the, the kind of thing that usually would be relegated to like a deleted scenes Thing on, a, on a blu-ray if at all on an animated movie but it just shows you like the wealth of talent that was there and and the the, the amazing number of, of experiments that they did to try to get the plot to where it is which is now like you know firing on all cylinders um so so talking about this movie is going to be uh, uh fantastic <laughs> because it's it's probably like i think the fact that this movie is as good as it is is kind of unbelievable considering yep. how difficult animation is as a process. Most animated movies, you're lucky if you make a movie that, that holds together, but you're, you're, it's almost like a moonshot to make a movie that, that, that manages to transcend everything and become some incredible experience, which is what this movie did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's a couple of points I wanted to, to bring up and uh, see, it's like get your opinions on them before we like jump into the plot of this, is yeah. Rodney Rothman said, like, for the first year and a half of this, they, it took them that long to like mm. essentially do the first three seconds, like to animate the first three, like animate the first three seconds of what they animated, and yeah. then they had a year and a half to complete the film. It like, took about 180 animators to make this movie, and they had to go at about a quarter of the typical pace of your average animated movie, just because of how incredibly uh, intricate the animation was. Um, and we'll talk about the animation a little bit because that is its own masterclass. But um, due to the, uh, uh, the challenges of making such a specific style and, and, uh, and, and such, a, such a, a, a detailed form of animation. Um, so if you think about it, it takes one week to do four seconds of content on an animated movie. On this movie, they had to do one second per week. So it was glacially slow. Yeah, so 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 yeah, th this movie was 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 incredibly difficult to do, and it's a testament to the uh, president of Sony Pictures Animation, uh, Christine Belson. This is one of the first movies that she greenlit after she started work there. She's a, 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 an industry veteran. She worked for many years with Jeffrey Katzenberg of DreamWorks, who's like a real tough player, and and she's very very smart and savvy. And uh, if you think about Sony Pictures Animation at the time, this is a a, a studio that you know like its biggest hits were like. Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, um, which is you know by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who who would you know became the 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 writers and the producers of of this film, uh, you know by way of the Lego Movie with Warner Brothers, um, but but like you know their hits were kind of few and far between. I think their first animated movie was Open Season, you know, which is like you know a very generic 
movie they they did the Smurfs and they did Hotel Transylvania mm -hmm. with Jendi Tarkovsky and 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 that that was a a franchise that that really has built up uh, quite a following and and one of Christine Belson's jobs when she came on was to extend the Hotel Transylvania yeah. franchise, but she also had to look for new ways to bring in uh, um, uh, sort of like uh, clout to the studio because this is at the time where John Lasseter I think you know is uh, was still in charge of both Disney and Pixar at this point they were the massive players. And and um, at at the time that Spider Verse was about to come out, you know, Disney's putting all of its energy into launching Disney Plus and and uh, you know basically creating a one stop shop for all of these IPs and franchises. So so Sony was not a big player, um, you know, like Smurfs, The Lost Village, uh, which was directed by uh, my first ever director on a movie, Kelly Asbury, who sadly passed away this year. You know that that, that movie had bombed, and uh, you know like. Sony was sort of seen as a, a studio that was like, it was okay, like it, it made decent movie that made decent bucks, but it wasn't like an Illumination, which had like a massive tentpole franchise like Despicable Me and the Minions. So, so Christine Belson comes in and just like basically hands the power back to the creatives. Because, you know, you think about animation as like a, a push-pull between executives uh, uh, exerting control and then filmmakers who really want to push the envelope and make something, you know, bold and dynamic. Christine Belson became what they described as sort of an, an offensive lineman for the filmmakers, you know, Peter Ramsey, Bob Persichetti, uh, Rodney Rothman. Um, uh, she gives them like cover as Sony keeps trying to push back to like give this movie the time it deserves. You know, like she dedicated considerable resources to this movie. It took four times as long as the typical animated production. The schedule was intense. And, you know, like they just, she described it as like flying in the dark. You know, like you're making something, and the only reason why they're letting you get get away with this is because it's Spider-Man, because it's yeah, IP, yeah. because it's you know, like you could never devote this much time and attention and care to something that was not property. And so it's it's a weird thing because like the the the, the intersection between commerce and art has always fascinated me. So it's like on one hand, yes, um, animated movies are defined as being very sort of commercialized. But on the other hand, without that amount of commercial viability for this character, the artists in, of Spider-Verse could not have made it as amazing as it was because they wouldn't have been allowed to spend that much money and time on it. So it's just this absolutely wonderful sort of like window of time where, where you have some creators with a really ballsy take on the character who didn't want to rest on laurels. And you had a producer and a president of Sony Pictures Animation who was brave enough to trust them yeah. to run with it and to give them cover. So that's why this movie just fucking, like, crushed. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things I heard as well was Peter Ramsey said that because of the success that Lord and Miller had for Sony, with mm. not just their, um, not so much their animation, but with the uh, yeah. live-action stuff they've done. 22 Jump Street. 21 Jump Street. Street yeah. There was, like, this kind of idea that they were told, like, you need more money, like, and obviously she must have had their back in being like, these guys kind of know know what they're doing, like, do you know what I mean? Know what they're doing. And from yeah. listening to um, those guys speak as well, Lord and Miller, about uh, Cloudy with a Chance mm. of Meatballs, I think it's like, I'd be remiss not to mention, like, that film has, like, probably one of the most, like, beautiful credits in a film where it says, like, uh, a film by a bunch of people because, like, they looked mm. at their... Yeah. They looked at their kind of animation studio and the people who were working on it. Like 
this isn't a Lord and Miller directed film. It's like the the lines. Yeah. They understood the collaborative yeah. nature of film of, of, of animation. And and Rodney yeah. Rothman like says that this film in some ways kind of had five directors because Lord and Miller were mm. there, like helping whenever they could and like kind of they were they were pitching ideas, but like very much in that collaborative way. And they said the way they work and the production for this was quite anarchic in the way that it kind of came together. That like like I've Peter Ramsey yeah. said he had never experienced something in the way that Sony work coming from DreamWorks. He said like they kind of have their set way of working and it's kind of all in house. Whereas Sony, it's kind of yeah. they go out to vendors and kind of you need this done. It's all out, it's kind of outsourced in a way, and it's got yeah. I mean, like obviously Sony ImageWorks uh, took took a lot of uh, the yeah. lion's share of, of of the sort of technical uh, uh, heft of the production. But yeah, you're right. It's one of those productions where where they're very flexible and fleet of foot uh, when it comes to, to 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 creating something new and bold and different. And it, it, it's funny you mentioned the four directors. I mean, like. I've talked a lot on different podcasts about how uh, collaborative uh, the story process is and, and like a, a, a line of dialogue or an idea can come from one story artist and it will make its way into the finished film. But even that story artist doesn't have full ownership over it because then it gets revised and rechanged and, and put it into different contexts. And, and so consequently, it's hard to tell who wrote what when you look at an animated movie. Like it'll say this many people wrote this, but then there's also all the people in the story department. There's the head of story. There's the director. But um, speaking of Lord and Miller, like these two guys really, really don't fuck about <laughs> because because like, yeah, they they assembled, as they said, like a group of people, a mm -hmm. bunch of people. But if you look at the first like first scripts for Spider-Verse, one of the lines in that stage direction is the Mars falls and rises at the same time when he does that leap of faith. You know, and that line comes straight from them and that ends up in the movie. And that's kind of rare, you know, to have somebody write something that has such a definitive vision and it's like one of the standout moments well, of the film. Yeah, yeah. Their, their caveat with this film was when they were kind of, would you like to do something with the, the Spider-Man IP was, we'll only do it. At first they declined. They said no. And then they kind of, I think this was like 2010, 2011 time, like mm. or, or earlier. They said no, we we don't we don't want to do it, and then kind of mold it over, and then came back and said we'll only do it if it's Miles Morales. Like at this point, yeah. like at the point this came out, this would have been the seventh Spider-Man film we would have had on screen in mm. the past eighteen years, and the fourth Spider-Man to be portrayed. Yes, you know, like the fourth actor to portray mm -hmm. a Spider-Man. You know, um, you know, this is after Sony had like had swung and missed with the amazing Spider-Man films. You know, Andrew Garfield was already outies and, and uh, uh, you know, Tom Holland was, was, was on loan, you know, to Marvel uh, in order to um, um, breathe more life into that character and, and rejuvenate him. But what's interesting about it is you touch on such a fine point, which is that this movie, when I weigh how much I'm, 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 I'm blown away by this movie. You have to take into account just how lazy it could have mm -hmm. been, because think about it. Executives, uh, you know, they think about okay, this this is a property. That means this isn't rocket science. You put that character on screen. You put him in the suit. 
you come up with a couple of fan deep cuts for the for the audience you know uh put in a few explosions get a bunch of backable actors it's a formula you know like that and and this is right when you know uh, there are articles and Martin Scorsese, you know, penning op-eds about how like superhero movies are just so generic and you know, like the, the the death of cinema. Like it's so easy to look at Spider-Man um, as an animated movie and be like, well, that's just going to be a drop in the bucket of of generic commercialism. And I I must confess, when I first saw the poster for Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, when I first saw the announcements, even when I saw the first trailer. I wasn't overly awed by it, and I was like, eh, "Well, it's going to be. I mean, it's 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 not part of the MCU, so I'm not going to make you know be, be I'm not going to treat it very seriously. And maybe I'll go see it, maybe I won't. The only reason I went to see it was because I went with Xander, uh, my girlfriend's son, and and you know, like uh, like because of that, I was like, suddenly I had to go watch it with my brother. I had to go watch it again. I had to go watch it several times. But um um, you have to think about how how much of how easy the temptation would have been to just rest on your yeah. laurels and and not try. You know, like like you could have just put Peter Parker in a movie, put him up against Green Goblin, maybe Dark Ark, and just had Mary Jane in it or Gwen Stacy and just 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 played it out. Um but 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 this movie took what I think was its greatest liability and made it a strength, which is what's the biggest weakness of making a Spider Man movie? It's that we've already seen the Spider Man yeah. American story. We're already sick to death of Peter Parker getting bitten by the fucking spider. <laughs> you know, like we saw it with Sam Raimi and, and, and Tobey Maguire. Then we saw it again with, uh, with, with Andrew Garfield. And then, and then like, you know, very tellingly, like the MCU version of Spider-Man completely sidestepped uh, uh, Tom Holland's origin story. They just sort of created a Spider-Man who was fully formed. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it is like um, the audience has already seen Peter Parker get bitten by the spider on screen. They've seen it like, They've seen it with Tobey Maguire, they saw it with Andrew Garfield, and then tellingly, the MCU sidesteps it completely and has Tom Holland just show up in Civil War completely fully formed because they know the audience is already fucking sick of this. Like, we've seen it again. Next to Bruce Wayne's origin story, <laughs> Spider-Man's origin story is now the most done to death of any superhero story. You know, like, I mean, like, Superman hasn't even crashed to Earth as many times yeah. as Peter Parker's last uncle, Ben. You know what I mean? Like, so, so the movie makers are, are, are looking at Spider-Man as a story. And they actually perform the greatest magic trick of all time, which is to have their cake and then fucking eat the fuck out of it. So get this, right? They start off by making their failure, like, like making their liability like a joke. First, they make a joke out of it because the opening is just a montage of Spider-Man's origin story saying, let's go over it one more time. And, and, and they just blitz through it very uh, frivolously because they're like, okay, we all know the story. It's been about the spider, blah, blah, blah. And then as we go through the movie, we meet all these other Spider-Men and Spider-Women, and then we see their origin stories coming up. So it becomes a running joke that we keep rushing through origin yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then by the very end, the final bookend is Miles Morales doing that speech. And you realize, holy shit, I've just watched the best spider-man origin story I've ever <laughs> yeah, seen. yeah yeah so they got me to be they took me from being cynical about origin stories to to actually like like so much of this movie is about blowing up what your expectations are about spider-man they'll take you to the edge of what you're expecting to see and then they'll undercut it so you, you you'll get a sequence like 
Miles goes up to the top of that building and you think he's going to do that test jump and then it just cuts to him running yeah, yeah, back yeah. down the steps and taking taking a jump from a much shorter building. And then you have moments like where it seems like the new Peter Parker is going to take him under his wing, the music swells, and then it just cuts to them in a diner and he's just shoving a burger in his face. Like They constantly give you times when you think something's going to happen that you expect. Like even when the spider yes. bites him, you yeah, think, yeah, yeah. oh my God, the spider's bit him. And then he just like <laughs> like like slaps the spider off his hand. There are so many times where they they play with that expectation, but they do it with such a knowing sort of long game because by the time it gets to the end and all the stakes are high and the emotions are true and Miles Morales really does do his leap of faith and he really does swing around and, and then we see that he really has had an origin story. It completely kills. like like Because they took that and they wore it on their sleeve by sort of like saying, hey, look, guys, we know you're tired of seeing the Spider-Man origin story, but we're going we're gonna to one-foot you so many times that you're not even going to realize we're giving you the best one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at, at, at the end, it's just so joyous. Like, I've been in cinemas and seen people like, American audiences are very, very vocal. And I've seen popcorn flying in the <laughs> air in those final scenes. It's just so amazing. Even to the thing of they go that extra step further, with kind of lampooning the like, origin stories or lampooning the other films that have come before it, whether it's uh, yeah. whether it's the original Spider-Man in this, like Peter Parker doing the kind of disco dance down the street from Spider-Man yeah. 3, or it's Peter B. Parker from the other dimension, yeah. and he the Jewish Parker, and he's doing the he's doing the upside down kiss yeah. from from number one and stuff like that, and even like poking fun at the wider world of Spider-Man as well when it's. Uh, I've got my own ice ice cream and it's like this guy yeah, it, it goes yeah. to an actual like real image of this like terrifying like melted like mess of an ice cream that I'm sure did the round yeah. on Twitter like all of this is real Spider-Man lore of of like the, the the cultural zeitgeist but I think that's such a great example man because this is a good way to tie back into Nick Cage you know how Nick Cage has become like our self-referential yeah. figure this is the first Spider-Man film to completely acknowledge his broader relevance to culture. Like this is the first movie that doesn't have any reason why it can't talk like uh, uh, knowingly mm -hmm. about, about the larger brand that Spider-Man is. You know, like, I mean, because it's acknowledging the existence of multiple worlds, it can acknowledge the Raimi-verse. It can acknowledge the fact that, um, like, at the very end, when um, when when uh, he goes back in time to uh, Earth sixty-seven, and you see him in the old Spider-Man cartoon, and they they recreate the the amazing yes, meme yeah, yeah. of Spider-Man pointing at himself. Like, it, it's so great because like you can tell that the Marvel MCU are actually taking a leaf out of that book because it's you know highly reported that they're going to be reuniting all of the uh, actors of Spider-Man from all the movies in a multiverse yeah. story, you know, Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and Tom Holland, you know, uh, that is very exciting, but it, that wouldn't have happened if Spider-Verse hadn't 100% kicked open that door of being like, hey, we can just take stock of all of the sum of everything we are and not treat it like a curse that we have to keep trying to overwrite this yeah. character. Let's just say that all these characters are valid. And that not only takes it, you know, like, takes the movies uh, um, into like this sort of bond, but it also reflects how comic books are, which is that like what makes comic books so great is that there are loads of different runs from loads of different writers who do different takes on different characters in the same way that there's, you know, you could say, you know, Tom Holland is my Spider-Man, or you could say Andrew Garfield is my Spider-Man. You could also say, you know, 
that uh, um, you know my favorite run is by Stan Lee, or you could say my favorite run is is uh, from um, uh, what's his name who did uh, Miles Morales's story uh, originally, Brian Michael Bendis. Yeah, like like you could see that there were so many like um, uh, opportunities for them to throw in references, but it doesn't feel glib because they they understand something which is like central to the theme which is that you could wear the mask anyone could wear the mask they're basically saying that anyone's spider-man is valid and so it's 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 an embracing of canon and and, and an embracing of multiple yeah. canons you know it's a love letter to the the, the long history of spider-man but also to the the sort of dueling histories of spider-man it's like saying hey if you love gwen stacy as spider gwen then good news because she's about to kick ass next to spider-man yeah, yeah. And if you love, if you love, you know, seeing all these characters together, newsflash: the universe won't implode. <laughs> like you get to have it all, man. You get to have your cake. But there's and eat lovely, it. like, referential things throughout the film as well. Whether it's um, there's a moment in it where you can see childish Gambino, uh, Donald Glover, on TV yeah, as uh, Troy from Community. Troy and Abbott in the morning. Obviously, one of Damn. his big things in the past was when they were looking to recast Spider-Man was like, he did yeah. a pitch to be like, I'll play Spider-Man. And like, it kind of, it's a, mm. there's an amazing like stand-up routine about it. Or even his casting in the MCU as um, Aaron, yeah. Yeah, as Aaron Davis. And there's a moment I want to speak about. It's probably like really throwaway, but there's this, I, I love the kind of, Times Square, just like I had, I, I, I paused there mm. just to look at some of the yeah, so many jokes. Look at the billboards, and uh, one one of the great ones is there's one for Hi Hello on Broadway, which <laughs> yeah, which is oh hello, and they they asked Seth Rogen for permission <laughs> to put him in like a fake movie that he's not yeah. in and things like that, and instead of Bridesmaid, it's uh, Baby Shower, yeah, like like all these posters for movies and all these in jokes, it's. Really beautiful. From Dust Till Sean's another one as well. But with the... And Chance the Rapper's on a poster, but instead of a three on his cap, four. it's a four. Yeah, yeah. Like little subtle thing. Well, that, well, what's really interesting about the Seth Rogen <laughs> thing is uh, Rodney Rothman used to work with him uh, as a writer on Undeclared. And it kind of plays back into mm. the, the thing we were talking about earlier about the, the Lord and Miller way of working of like everybody's kind of in it. And you saying about like... Store, like Someone in story can kind of pitch a line and kind of... Yeah, it's a flat leadership structure when it comes to collaborative storytelling. You know, it's like everyone can throw in an idea. And he learned that from the kind of um, the Judd Apatow way of working from, mm -hmm. from TV. So Rodney uh, Ruffman was a writer on Undeclared, the kind of ill-fated follow-up season to Freaks and Geeks back in the day. But then yeah. he's kind of got producer credits on stuff like getting Sarah Marshall, get him to the Greek uh, five-year engagement. Mm. But those films, mm. he said the way they worked on them was everybody, it, it was it was a TV writer's room taken to Hollywood mm. because that's what Judd knew at the time. Well, you mentioned Community. Troy and Abbott in the morning. I mean, who directed Community episodes that are some of the most classics, but the Russo yes, brothers yeah, yeah. who would, you know, like... <laughs> Weirdly, comedic writers, like comedy writers, you know, you can look down your nose and be like, oh, it's just a comedy writer. But weirdly, comedy writers can make some of the best dramatic or action directors, it would seem, because they've got this collaborative, flexible mindset to work really well with actors, create rapport with their characters and create a lot of banter that, that makes people fall in love with those characters in a way that doesn't feel workmanlike. And so consequently, the Russo brothers 
blew up onto the MCU scene with with uh, Winter Soldier, and uh, uh, in the same way that Lord and Miller just sort of took over uh, as the new overlords of like uh, bold animation. You know, like like these these people who you think, oh well, they're just joke writers who do like you know frat boy comedies. It turns out that 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 kind of like improvisational collaborative spirit is actually perfect for being a fertile ground for ideas that make pretty badass movies. Yeah, yeah. So. Should we finally get round to at least like describing the plot as best as we can? Yeah, yeah let's do it. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, do you want do you want to do you want, do you want to just kind of yeah. give us a, a a brief synopsis of what what kind of plays out in this? Okay, so Spider Man Into the Spider Verse uh, introduces audience goers to the first cinematic iteration of Miles Morales, who was an African American Puerto Rican American. He has a Puerto Rican mother and African American father. He grows up in Brooklyn, and uh, he lives in a, a reality uh, very similar to the regular Marvel universe, um, in which there is a Spider-Man, but that Spider-Man dies, and uh, uh, Miles Morales uh, gets bitten by a radioactive spider at the same time and witnesses the death of his hero, Peter Parker, um, and is therefore tasked with having to finish Peter Parker's last mission, which is to destroy the super collider that's being uh, uh, created by um, none other than Wilson Fisk, uh, you know, great um, New York mm -hmm. Marvel villain from both Spider-Man and Daredevil comic runs, um, who's trying to uh, who's trying to merge different realities of uh, what we will call the Spider-Verse, because he's trying to get versions of his wife and son uh, back from the dead. Uh, which is a very long-winded excuse for bringing together all of the different Spider-Man characters from different comic book runs um, and putting them all in one big, massive Avengers-style mashup. And so, so they assemble and take on Fisk, and in doing so, lead Miles Morales to his uh, his ultimate destiny of becoming the next Spider-Man. I couldn't have said it better myself. That is a perfect uh, summation of this film. And I just want to kind of mention this cast as well because it's absolutely yeah. Oh, it's it, it, there's not no. Blink, so you've got Shamik Moore as Miles Morales, who just gives this mm. amazing performance. Whether it's this kind of like the nerdy uh, awkwardness at the beginning, and like mm. some some of the best moments, like when he tries to uh, obviously he's trying to live up to the mantle of Spider Man, and we get this moment near the end where he. Uh, where he speaks to his dad as Spider-Man. Officer Spider-Man. Listen, um, down there, that was, I, I mean, I owe you. Okay. <clears throat> I look forward to working with you. <laughs> yeah, 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 me too, I guess. But I, I don't approve of your methods, but uh, we're just gonna have to agree to disagree. Thank you for your bravery tonight. I love you. <laughs> Wait, what? Perfectly played by mm. uh, Brian Tyree Henry. Brian Tyree Henry, yeah. <laughs> Who didn't want to like didn't want to do the film at first, and and then kind of read about Marvel Morales's like, origin being the first like kind of mm. uh, African American Puerto Rican like character, like. Yeah, created by Brian Michael Bendis because he really wanted to uh, write uh, a sort of gatekeeping wrong that had yeah. been sort of like permeating that industry and permeating every industry. So you know, like it's 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 it was a uh, a very timely for it to be happening right now. This movie, especially as you know, we're reaching this massive tipping point in culture. So yeah. in that moment, like yeah, he puts on that like great voice where he tries to like sound like really tough and stuff like that. And 
throughout yeah. it. Like uh, Shamik Moore's performance is fantastic, and then it's it's brilliant. He has to be both wise and immature yeah. at the same time. You know, he has to veer between being charismatic and being really <laughs> dorky. And um, I believe Shamik Moore. Uh, a couple of years before he got this role, uh, wrote a dream journal in which he said uh, on the cover, I am Miles Morales. And on the back cover, he wrote, I am Spider-Man because he wrote down his his ambitions that he wanted to play this right. character. And then it, it just, for some reason, that dream manifested through sheer force <laughs> of will, anyway, it, it would seem. And he's he's perfect for it. He's, he's, he's absolutely perfect. And I also kind of love the fact that he... Um, apparently his performance was so uh, real that the animators were heavily influenced by his voice recordings. You know, they actually, you know, his, his mannerisms, you'll notice it's a very be beautifully oh. animated film uh, for natural mannerisms and sort of verite, you know, like, like characters smush up their faces, they ugly cry, they fidget, they look around, they, 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 they sort of pout in ways that are very realistic and kind of, in, you know, like, like very, very naturalized. And, and, you know, central to that is, is Shamik Moore's, you know, incredibly uh, believable performance. Also, uh, we should also talk about, while we're talking about his family, you know, Mahershala Ali, Academy Award winning Mahershala Ali as Uncle Aaron. Who, you know, again. The, that whole family is just the, the heart. Yeah, of and his, his mum as well, played by, uh, where is she? Uh, Luna uh, Lauren Bell. Yeah, who uh, people listening might recognise uh, from Dexter. Plays the kind of like uh, mm. chief inspector, doesn't she? Of uh, like, uh, yeah, thingy. and like, I'll just rattle through some of these names in there. And uh, I would say, just, yeah, yeah. A second, um, before we move off the family, one thing I did want to say about uh, um, the family unit is that like, uh, it, it this is a movie with an awful lot of moving parts, so obviously, some characters yeah. are going to get a shorter shrift than others. I mean, uh, the one thing I'm looking forward to because there's obviously a sequel in production on this, you know, like, you know, um, being made right now because they're not. <laughs> Um, uh, is that I, I'm, I'm sure that they'll probably try to devote a little bit more time to the mother because the mother ca character does get the least amount of screen time and sort of like she they kind of do a little bit what I would call like cultural lip service to her in so mm. much as like you know she she speaks in Spanish and she 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 has these moments where she says a couple of really beautiful motherly lines but like I I I, I want to see that character developed a little bit more but obviously the the main the main event is the as you said like the 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 dynamic between the father and the son um it's very interesting to me because even like this is quite a rarity in superhero uh generic conventions and it's even a rarity in spider-man generic conventions for a hero to have both his parents yes. be alive have you noticed that like like even like even spider-man doesn't have his parents and uncle ben kick the bucket whereas like um it's very refreshing to see a movie you know it's it it's it's not rare for a superhero to have daddy issues. Like Iron Man has daddy issues, Thor has daddy issues. So many of these characters, Batman and everyone, everyone's got a problem with their parents. But very rarely are the parents alive to actually navigate that relationship with the hero. And so that's why the third act of this movie uh, hits so deeply is because you actually you don't get the sort of like almost like the free out of not being able to have the parent say any, say anything yeah. back to the hero. You can actually have the father affirm his son in that beautiful scene through the door in the most beautiful way. And 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 so uh, that's been like the most refreshing part of, of the story for me is like you very rarely get to actually work through those issues in a well, movie and, and develop that relationship into the future. You know, characters tend to stay completely still because their parents are gone. I, I would say as well that one of the key themes of this film is this longingness for a paternal figure. And we see that throughout yeah. all the relationships that Miles has 
throughout this, whether it's uh, with with his uncle Aaron, whether it's with Peter Parker, like the first one, whether it's Peter B. Parker. It's this kind of like, and it's his kind of journey throughout yeah. this is the acceptance almost of his own father. And like, it, obviously there's yeah. a key moment in the beginning, like it's played for a laugh where his, his dad makes him say like, I love you over like the, ta- the Tannoy yeah, system. Yeah. And when we get the payoff mm. of that at the end, uh, Boys, I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but like that really packs like a, a, an emotion. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Mate? How much does that wreck you being a dad? Oh, it like this film. Because like, you got you got teary over the crudes. <laughs> yeah. This must have absolutely obliterated you, man. Yeah, I've I like so I've watched this. It's a real testament to how much I've enjoyed this film. Mm. I've watched it. Four times in the last two years it's been out. I don't, it's I, eminently rewatchable. I, I can't say that for any other film. And I've watched it mm, twice. Definitely any Nick Cage film even. Mm-hmm. You know? I've watched it twice um, in, in the last week. And, and, and you still see new things every time you watch it. There's there's mm-hmm. details everywhere. Yeah. Um, and and um, I love what you said about how um, it's about yearning for a father figure. Because what, what makes it such an interesting idea is that this is not about someone missing a father figure it's about someone with competing father figures he has loads of different father figures in the story it's about choosing one because he's got uncle aaron he's got his dad so that you've got the law versus the wrong side of the tracks and then you've got the peter p parker the sort of schlubby version of the mentor and he is even competing with the idealized version of spider-man who dies in the first act you know like and, and and then you get a bunch of other surrogate like parents in basically all the other spider men and women you know even gwen stacy you know, f- you know, fifteen months is senior, still, still qualifies. Yeah, well, we get this, we get this beautiful thing as well. And like, I, I guess it plays into another one of the key themes as well is this thing, and you, you touched on it earlier that anyone can put on the mask, and we get that great uh, speech yeah. again. What this film does so great is it, it gives you these nice emotional moments, and then we'll undercut it with like a, a nice joke or something when. Uh, Mary Jane yeah. Watson's delivering the speech. She says, "Like in our own way, we are all Spider-Man, and we're counting on you." Yeah. And then, like Miles thinks that's directed directly at him, and he's like, <laughs> "Oh, so it is about me." And then we get like the guy next to him be like, "I think she's just talking figuratively about." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. think it's a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but you're absolutely right. And then it shines with this lovely moment later because one of the best parts of that speech for me is when she says that Peter always said that he. Uh, just was the guy who happened yeah. to get bit. He was the kid who happened to get bit. He uh, that wasn't what made him Spider-Man, and um, that actually chimes with something that I I love towards the end uh, of the second act, going into the third, which is the scene in his bedroom when the other Spider people come in and commiserate with him over the loss of Uncle Aaron, and you realize that you're watching a true origin story because they all tell him yeah. the people that they've lost, and you realize that like getting bitten by the spider is not what makes spider-man it's actually losing someone like it's, it's the uncle ben of it all it's it's uncle ben died and peter parker could have saved him and he lives with that every day of his life and so even though uh miles morales has both of his parents he loses uncle aaron and if he had been, been a better spider-man or if he had been better at evading him or if he had gotten to him differently things might have gone differently and you realize that this movie is really writing like a thesis on what it means to be spider-man and and it's it's such a rare opportunity to have every Spider-Man get to say that to him in such a clear, elegant way of like, hey, my God, you're right. That is what unifies all the yeah. Spider-Men. And it just rounds home just how much all of the creatives involved truly get Spider-Man, truly understand what Spider-Man is. You couldn't have written a better TED Talk 
about what Spider-Man represents. Even the original you know? uh, Peter Parker gets to kind of like, in a roundabout way, give his own like take on that, where uh, he says like his spider sense goes off to my, like uh, Miles is mm. like thing, and he says you're like me. And Miles' response, I thought I was. He yeah, says, not, "Yeah, yeah." And he says, "I don't want it." Like he says, "You're just like me." And uh, Miles' response is, mm. "I don't want to be." And he says, "I don't think you have a choice, kiddo." And it's like it's it's yeah. that like I don't like even like talk when you kind of like break down the themes in this and yeah the the, the paternal stuff like really gets me. I, my voice is cracking right now. Just kind of. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. Let it all out. It's not. It's not your fault. It's, it's not. But your like, fault. and like, you get the like paternal lessons throughout this as well that Miles learns that makes him who he is. And there's nothing better than that with the whole like you saying about it, they. You need the Uncle Ben of it all for him to become Spider-Man, yeah. and it is like the lesson he learns from Uncle Aaron. Yeah. That, that... And, 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 you know, like, you know, this is as good a time as any before we go into the rest of the cast to, to talk about um, just how relevant and important the, the whole you could wear the mask thing is. Because, you know, obviously Miles Morales represents uh, a representation on screen that we just not, haven't had in a Spider-Man movie and, you know, that we rarely see, uh, you know, up until recently in yeah. any comic book movies or any movies, which is like... Peter Ramsey was saying that, like, you know, there was a point when he was looking at rushes um, uh, uh, of Miles hiding in the collider whilst watching Spider-Man fight uh, Green Goblin. And he had this moment where he was suddenly struck, like, for the first time, almost to tears of, like, holy shit, I've been watching little white kids huddle in fear, watching something and then being called to adventure in movies my whole life. You know, like, I've been watching Spielberg movies and uh, Back to the Future and George Lucas movies and stuff like that. And, like, I've never seen a brown kid or, you know, a black kid you know, with an Afro haircut, um, you know, crouching and having that similar call to adventure before. And um, uh, um, we, we've reached this fantastic cultural tipping point. You know, obviously we've, we've seen, you know, the George Floyd murder broke the Black Lives Matter movement basically over the battlements, you know, the, like, like yeah. the water's coming in and, and culture has to change. And that's uh, sprinkled down into every single industry, including my own. And uh, one of the things that I love about working in animation right now is, seeing how much uh, uh, companies such as Sony, which has been a very big leader um, in that, you know, especially through Spider-Verse and stuff like that, but also the, the studio I work for right now, Netflix Animation, have been really opening their doors and making sure that we get people in the room who have different life experiences uh, because those life experiences are valuable and it means that we don't make generic uh, uh, orthodox movies that are basically built up upon, uh, you know, a, a worldview that is kind of now eating itself because it's just so, you know, overdone like you know the, the white male experience has made the majority of movies of the 20th century they're the movies that we were raised on and so consequently we're kind of repeating ourselves a lot whereas like you get a character like miles morales who comes from a biracial household you see him um uh getting ready for school uh with his mother and his father and you see a glimpse into a world that is actually all over um um all over the place it's, it's, it's everywhere you look you know like walking through brooklyn you're gonna see a yeah. Miles morales you know that that is a, um, a, a a life experience that deserves to be on film, and uh, um, I remember watching uh, Netflix did this fantastic panel with black creatives uh, um, in the animation industry, people like uh, Frank Abney Jr., who's an animator at Pixar, fantastic filmmaker who's now also working at Netflix, and um, and Peter Ramsey was there, and um, uh, he said this fantastic quote, which I'll I'll see if I can remember, which is he says, uh, you know, my blackest experience 
if I'm true and honest about it, like if it's true to my humanity, is going to resonate with the whitest possible person you can imagine. You know, like it's not really as as scary as like, oh my God, we're going to tell different stories and have representation. Representation is important in and of itself because you get to see like, you know, black kids or biracial kids or kids of any ethnicity, if they see their ethnicity on screen, automatically it changes their worldview and opens up the possibilities of what they can be in life. You know, that's why Black Panther is so important. That's why Miles Morales is so important. But Peter Ramsey, you know, never lost sight of the fact that end of the day, stories are yeah. universal. You know, like Miles Morales' story actually made me personally the whitest Oxford-born posho you could possibly imagine. Relate to Spider-Man in a way I've never related <laughs> yeah. to Peter Parker. And weirdly, it was because it, it wasn't because Miles Morales represented me. It's because he didn't represent me. It's because he was a different kid from a different walk of life. Seeing him succeed and become Spider-Man made me care about Spider-Man yeah, more as a white guy. To elaborate on your point on like representation, it's something we've seen like mm -hmm. a lot more in um, TV and stuff like that as well. But a show I watched this year is Lovecraft Country, and like one of the mm. things that, that I can't wait to see that. That's, yeah, that one of the really things cool. that's kind of been um, criticised for is the fact that. It, it plays almost like an anthology, but we'll have an episode that will be mm. in the mold of like an Indiana Jones or like a, a haunted house and stuff yeah. like that. And people are like, yeah, this is played out. We've seen this. We've, we've seen that. And it's like, yeah, but this show has specifically done it with a black cast because like all yeah. we've seen for 50 years, if not longer, is Indiana Jones mm. is a straight white man. And it's like... Yeah, the closest we got to diversity in Indiana Jones was it was almost played by Tom Selleck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, or even, even the portrayal. He could have had a mustache. That's, that's, that's how brave it would have been. And, and the so, things okay. of like representation of anyone who isn't white in that, in, in like an Indiana Jones film, mm. isn't the best portrayal yeah. of, of other like races or cultures in the slightest so like for, to see to see mm. stuff like that and obviously like with a show like lovecraft country to take somebody who was like an author who was himself a massive racist piece of shit and yeah. take that work and go you know what fuck you we're gonna build upon like we're gonna build upon the kind of world you created and make something that you personally would hate like really like really <laughs> like yeah, there's something so bold. Yeah, but about uh, that. I think, I think a total. Well, it's a bit like um, you know Taika Waititi portraying Hitler in Jojo Rabbit. It's like who better to um, who better to to to, port to to rip the shit out of this guy? And and you talk about Lovecraft Country. Um, Jordan Peele obviously broke onto the scene with Get Out, and uh, then when he made his follow up, Us. Um, people were going, oh, so this is going to be another socially conscious movie that's going to play with uh, uh, racial issues and themes, right? And he was like, actually, no, it's just going to be a straight-up horror movie. It just happens to have a black family as the leads. You know, like, like what's happening in there? Obviously, there's social, political, like, themes in us, but mostly the family is just yeah. there. It's just, he just, it's just who he chose to shine the, the light on. And that's that's powerful in and of itself. A film like that deals more with something that I guess uh, Americans don't like seem to think doesn't exist, which is class. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, so like, we, we, yeah, mm. that's that's like a whole a whole different like kind of realm of uh, kind of social political 
Yeah, and and it's like uh, it's like uh, Mark Bernarden says he's a, a writer on a bunch of things and you know a podcaster with Kevin Smith. Like he often uh, tweets and writes about um, uh, issues to do with representation and to do with you know especially geeky yeah. geeky uh, characters of, of color and about uh, the messages that the people uh, send consciously and subconsciously, uh, both good and bad through media when it comes to race. And like he's always getting attacked on Twitter by like fragile white guys like being like why are you gonna keep picking on white guys so much and like why is everything about race mark and he's always replying with like i don't know if you notice this but everything's about race yes <laughs> you know what i mean like like whether you want it to be or not just the fact that miles morales is who he is makes spider-man into the spider-verse weirdly about race you know like whether you want it to be or not just the fact that he's there is amazing and revolutionary and it shouldn't be yeah. but it is and 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 that's important to understand and you know how like like recently we've had a lot of movies, you know, uh, like movies uh, finally uh, having female leads in superhero movies. We've had Captain Marvel, we had Wonder Woman. We're getting more and more uh, racially diverse characters in the MCU and in the, you know the DCEU. And you, every time that happens, a bunch of fucking termites come out of the woodwork, ready to be like aggrieved and angry about it. But what's what I find so sort of like fascinating about it is that there really haven't been any attacks on Spider-Man into the Spider-Man. Well, no. Pretty much everyone across the board loves that movie. And I think the reason that it works is because of its specific multiverse nature. Just the fact that you actually have Peter Parker in the film too, and he literally passes the baton to Miles. And you see Spider-Man Noir, and you see Kimiko Glenn's uh, uh, futuristic um, yeah, Spider-Man. Yeah. Uh, you see... Uh, Gwen Stacy, you see all these uh, amazing examples of representation right down to Peter Porker, you know, and and because it basically allows you to have all of them exist in one world, it doesn't play in the same way that people, that, that riles people up for some reason. And that's not to say that those people aren't fragile idiots about the other examples, but I think for some reason, Spider-Verse just, just like, you're having too much of a good time to even think about well, yeah, it. Yeah, and like one of the things as well is like, again, that people would probably like normally get annoyed about. Like we saw it with uh, Ghostbusters in 2016. Like Doc Ock mm. in this, played by uh, Catherine Hahn, is, is a yeah. female Doc Ock. And Catherine it doesn't, Hahn. but it doesn't, it doesn't feel like, oh, like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and that's great. what I mean. And, and every, She's really cool and really everything creepy. works in this. And like, yeah, to kind of like, I'll just quickly rattle through some of this cast just because I feel like I'll, I'll be doing a lot of these people a disservice. We have Jake Johnson mm. as Peter B. Parker. Gwen Stacy is played by Haley Steinfeld. We have Lily Tomlin as Aunt May. We have Zoe Kravitz as <laughs> Mary Jane. We have John Mulaney as Spider-Ham. John Mulaney is so <laughs> epic. Um, there's an amazing video where uh, you kind of get the voice recordings of some of uh, of a lot of the actors in this, and it's isolated and mm. like just yeah, jo John Mulaney, and it, it it pulls right back to that um, uh, billboard of Oh Hello, because obviously that was the jo yeah John Mulaney yeah. Uh, Broadway show. Uh, who else do we have in this? As you mentioned, Kamiko Glenn as Penny Parker. Leave Schreiber as Leave Schreiber's so good as well, Again, isn't he? Chris Pine. And let's not forget, let's not forget much overlooked Chris Pine yeah. as the first Peter Parker who dies. And and like you know, like talk about how amazing this cast is. 
Chris Pine's singing Spidey Bell is probably the best thing he's ever done in his entire career. Just, you know, obviously he can sing and like that, that song is so hilarious when it gets to the end. Uh, Lake Bell plays Vanessa Fisk. We have Joma, Joma Tacone yeah. uh, from The Lonely Island is the Green Goblin. It's just like a stacked cast. It's a murderer's row. It's just, it's stacked. You're right. It's totally oh, yeah. Stacked. And then it's like, oh, if you wait till the end of the credits, you get to hear. Oscar Isaacs as Oscar Isaac, yeah, and and obviously Jay Johnson like really really is the perfect yes, Parker voice for me. Like he's kind of like kind of schlubby, kind of irreverent, and you know like no matter how mean he is, Jake Johnson has a voice that you know he's a nice guy. Like he can be as mean as he wants to to, to Miles, and you're just like, oh, he has a heart. Yeah. Well, casting up and down the board here as well, apart from people who are just amazing voice actors, they have kind yeah. of got people based on like. It seems very conscious casting. So someone like Jake Johnson mm. has had an extensive career as one character in New Girl. And it like yeah. this it kind of seems like the the makers of this knew what they were doing with that casting. And it, it's it's to the same point with yeah. like Nicolas Cage. Like they know there's a certain demographic of people who will go like I, I watched this last week with my son and my uh, uh, dad. And my dad turned around to me and went is, wow, yeah, you were, is that Nicolas Cage? I was like, well, yeah, funnily enough, it is. Uh, uh, <laughs> Dad, what did <laughs> they do? <laughs> I try and indoctrinate my son into liking Nicolas Cage. Get them while they're young. Get the hooks then, in. Like... Next week, Raising Arizona. Next week after that, Bringing Out the Dead. We have John Mulaney, who just kind of like somebody who's got this as you said, like a, a proper stat, and he's got this cartoon voice anyway. Do animals talk in this dimension? Because I don't want to freak him out. Whether it's like his uh, people will know yeah. from Big Mouth, or like, or just yeah. just his stand-up. He has this kind of like car. He sounds like because that character is is, is obviously a, a direct evocation of like you know, Ward Kimball, UPA-style Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Oh, like it's, a, it's a yesteryear form of animation, um, uh, his Spider-Ham, and uh, John Mulaney sounds like a voice from a bespoke time. You know, he sounds, he sounds like a classic comedic character who you'd imagine would be on, like, a, you know, on a well, yeah, he, from yesteryear. He, he gets the moment to even, uh, that, that's all, folks, and he's like, uh, are we legally allowed to say that? <laughs> yeah. Can we say that? And yeah, like he even gets to say one of the best lines um, about the fact that you're watching an animation. Like, oh, did that feel like a cartoon? Like he's he, he's saying like this is a love letter to Spider-Man. It's a love letter to cinema, and it's a love letter to cartoons I, well, he, as well as comics. It's basically runs the gamut of different styles right down to. Um, you know, Kimiko Glenn being like a Sailor Moon style manga anime character. You know, the 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 number of different styles that reference comic books and classic eras of animation. You know, just Legion, right down to the fact that like uh, you know uh, Wilson Fisk's flashbacks are based upon artwork from uh, the Daredevil comics uh, that he's featured in, and the style of Gwen Stacy's reality is the style of the Spider-Gwen comics. You know, there's so many deep cuts, more deep cuts than yeah. we could ever go into in one podcast. And there's, um, yeah, to the point of like the animation style, stuff like that, it's really clever in the way that like once Miles has been bitten by the spider, it almost like stuff becomes more comic book-like, whether it's like, yeah, yeah like the pat, like the kind of uh, speech. 
yeah, the or the thought bubbles up on screen, or the kind of like all of a sudden there's like uh, I don't what, what they call it like a a thwack well, and I stuff mean, like uh, that. Yeah, you're talking about like uh, like like thought bubbles, speech bubbles, captions, and yeah. panels. Um, this is actually a really good opportunity to start talking a little bit about yes, the visual please, style yes, of this film because the visual <laughs> style is, is 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 off the chain amazing. But but um, one thing that I think is really fascinating when in, when the comic book style does kick in, like immediately after it gets bitten, one thing I love about it is that it's basically everything that made the Ang Lee Hulk feel like cliched and hackneyed. Like, ugh, he's putting panels into a live action movie and he's playing around with the, with layers of focus and, 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 and doing speech bubbles and thought bubbles. And it just felt really like Ang Lee is a great artistic filmmaker, but it felt like someone who didn't really understand comic appeal. And you think that that, because it didn't work for the Hulk, it wouldn't work here, but actually it just proves that animation may be the perfect medium for, for adapting a comic book because the filmmakers really worked hard to try to uh, um, make the audience feel like they'd walked into a comic book illustration, and they did that in a number of ways. Um, I would say, when I walked out of this movie uh, in the cinema, I, I can remember thinking that this had to be the biggest quantum leap I've seen in animation style since Batman the Animated Series. You know, Batman the Animated Series came out in the 90s. Uh, it was after Tim Burton's, you know, 1989 Batman. Everyone was, like, into Batman, but Batman wasn't, like, all about the fan service just yet, you know, and and Warner Brothers decided to make a cartoon, and once again, it was a, 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 a it was a property that they could have they could have been lazy about, they could have rested on their laurels, but luckily, just through absolute utter serendipity, you had people like Bruce Timm, Paul Dini, who were just super big geeks about Batman, who just grabbed that by the horns, and you know, Bruce Timm decided, hey, let's put uh, all of the images of Gotham against black card, mm-hmm. let's 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 actually make this inky black Gotham, a character, and, and let, 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 let's create the sort of art deco, dark deco style for that. And so consequently, that's a show that has managed to not only stand the test of time, you know, for, for, for generations now, but also, you know, has created characters that have become part of canon of the comics and the films, such as Harley Quinn, who's now a linchpin of the DCEU, you know? So so um, when I was, you know, walking out of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, I was like, I've not seen an animation style completely upend the board like this film has in a long, well, long time. And so, like, weirdly, it's another superhero movie. But um, they did just, like, the, the the bravery of, like, clearly they're experimenting. It must have taken them ages to, to refine that style. But they just decided they were going to go balls to the wall, and it pays off like, like, like gangbusters. So, you know, first off, you've got stuff like the fact that... Uh, the animation is done in twos as opposed to ones. And so um, what that means is that uh, there's, there's 12 images drawn per second rather than the usual 24 um, images, uh, yeah, yeah. 24 frames per second. So so the animation doesn't look fluid for the characters. The the camera moves are done in ones, but the, the characters' performances are done in twos, which creates a sort of janky, almost stop-motion-y style to the movements. And, you know, that's used sort of thematically as well, because as Miles Morales grows in his competency, his his swinging becomes more mm-hmm. fluid. Um, but 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 um, because they uh, do it in twos, they also make the decision to get rid of blur and, and uh, camera shake. Basically, if ever a camera whip pans away from a character, instead of using blur, which is just like a, you know, you yeah. press a button, 
they actually had to do something which made it... This is one of the reasons why it took so long for them to do a couple seconds of film, which is that they had to stretch and warp characters' faces and then add scratchy lines over the image and actually use a bunch of common tools of classic 2D animation. You know, uh, you look, if you look at a movie like uh, The Reluctant Dragon by Disney in, you know, in the, the golden era of, uh, of, of Disney movies, um, you'd see a character shake his head and a, an artist would have drawn five heads with with the uh, uh, yeah, motion yeah. lines on it to create the sense that he was like, <laughs> blah, 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 like that, you know? And and they do that in this movie. So it's like in the same way that uh, story-wise, this is about, uh, you know, the dipping your toe in the old and the new. Um, in the animation style, they're doing that as well. So they're using cutting edge techniques to create this thing you've never seen, but they're also leaning on old techniques that, that, that give this sort of romanticized sort of throwback feel to everything. Um, it's, you know, I mean, I think they even described the movie style as bespoke, you know, it's a bespoke quality, even though it's absolutely, you know, top grade animation. So um, not only that, but then, you know, they go full hard on the, the comic book imperfections of offset printing, you know, like the, the idea that when you have like a four color print yeah. job on a comic book, you know, um, when comic books go through the printing process, the color offsets aren't always aligned perfectly. So the resulting image you know, looks like it's out of focus. And so that's like a chromatic aberration that they purposefully put into this movie. And uh, that, that color separation, not only does it evoke the feeling of comic book, but they also used it in lieu of yeah. depth of field. So if you look at the movie, like I was watching that first scene of uh, Miles and his dad in the car, that scene goes on for a long time. And I actually love it because you look out the window and like, for the first like ten minutes, you don't know your, your eyes don't even understand yeah. what you're looking at. <laughs> do you do you, yeah, you feel that exactly like, you're like, like what's weird about this? There's something weird, but it's like gorgeous, <laughs> and I can't put my finger on it. And then because they're because you keep seeing New York going behind them, I'm like, is is New York out of focus or not? And then I realize no, it's just that the the, the colors have separated the further back into the distance you go. So it's basically created the illusion that it's out of focus, and and that sort of beautiful way of, of of using like an imperfection as a focus ring not only is it like romantic but it's just also like visually interesting you, you find yourself suddenly engaged as yeah. you go through the artistic style of the movie you know when they go into that absolutely incredible greenish uh, neon lit sort of subway yeah. tunnel you go down to where they do the graffiti scene like the movie simultaneously manages to be graphical and pushed, but also at the same time really realistic and observed. You know, like like very very, like like down to earth as well. New York feels like a real yeah. place. You know, I I visited New York and it really feels like New York. Um, uh, it, it it feels um, it doesn't feel shiny or polished. It doesn't, it, it doesn't feel like a uh, like a product. And uh, um, I, I should also give a shout out to Shiyun Kim, who's the character designer on this movie. I follow him on Twitter. He's a really cool guy, really smart. And one of the things that he did, you know, playing with representation and everything like that, is that he really, really invests so much characterfulness into the the, the extras mm -hmm. in New York. You did like no one looks like a no. generic yeah. cut and paste extra in this movie in a way that you might get in like a Disney or a Pixar movie. You know, even a good one. You know, it's like uh, like every person walking the subway everyone in that you know in the streets looks like a real person who has a story like you could follow any one of those extras to another part of new york and you probably yeah. you probably want to hear that guy's story you know and so um you know visually it's 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 so dense it's so detailed and then you get to some of the broader aspects like when his spidey sense kicks in 
and they start really going with the sort of uh, 60s style psychedelia, yeah. like really amazing primary colors, a lot like the Steve Ditko, you know, Marvel uh, classic comic book page splashes where they would go into like cosmic shit and, you know, like basically whatever the fuck drugs they were taking <laughs> back in the 60s when they were dreaming this shit up, you know, like is, is basically, you know, the same thing as watching this movie. You come out with a contact high. Um, and, and and then, you know, like when we get to like Super Collider, you know, um, the biggest visual motif that you see is the sort of Kirby yeah. dot effect, you know, and and that's fantastic as well. And, and uh, you know, you get this feeling that it's both a throwback to the comics, but also a throwback to um, Miles's spray paint and stuff like that. I mean, it's it, it's just so considered. Everything about this movie, every detail has been thought over and 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 sort of like agonized over. You can tell, and consequently, you go through the movie from that very first seal of approval from the Comics Code Authority at the very beginning, which you see on every single comic book, but it shows up at the very beginning of the film. The moment you see that, you just know you're in capable hands and you just relax. You become simultaneously really engaged and utterly yeah. relaxed. That like, oh, this is going to be a Well, really to your point drama. of like the animation style and that kind of like uneasiness you feel at the beginning, it's kind of like, it's got this weird like uncanniness to it of like, you don't like, as you said, you don't quite know what you're looking at, but like, you love mm. it. And it kind of reminded me in a way of like, felt like this is like the kind of a thousand step away from like watching something like a scanner darkly it had that like tone to it that kind of yeah. like soft cell is it like it's also animation or whatever it is like that kind of yeah you're right um even though it's a uh, state-of-the-art um animation they they actually did a lot of um uh um work at trying to make it less perfect so they would actually have these computer generated models of the characters but then they would create a computer program that they would teach to to draw the outlines around their faces. They would hand draw the outlines, and with every single hand drawn line, the computer would intuitively learn more about how to do the outlines. So then they would then be able to tweak the outline that the computer would would overlay onto the three D model, and then add their own like impressionistic artistic touches, like a furrow of a brow. And if you look at uh, Miles Morales's eyes, like first of all, his face is yeah. a fantastic design. Like he feels very real. Like you feel like you've met this kid. But if you look at his eyes, his eyes aren't even uh, perfect irises. They're like weird shapes. They're not perfect circles. There's this kind of quality in animation design where a character can look so perfectly realized that they feel like a doll. They feel like a piece of plastic or something, even though the, you know, the CG is, is state of the art. It can feel <laughs> unreal. And uh, uh, I love the fact that every character in Spider-Verse is yeah. sort of like hand-drawn, yeah, even it's, though it's, it's not. Like, I don't know. It's so beautiful. And obviously, we, yeah. Is there is there certain story beats or is there certain things that you really want to talk about with this, David? I know we said we could speak about this for hours and not even touch the surface. I think as as, as we're doing right now. <laughs> yeah, I can talk about a couple of things. So so um, first, I'll start by getting like the few nitpicks I could make. Okay, yeah, yeah. Way, just because, like, you know, we're very comfortably over the finish line of this being a classic piece of animation. So it's like, like, like the, any, anything I, I criticize was obviously going to be a total nitpick. So, so like, you know, I, I've mentioned that I wish the mother yep. would get more time in the story. I think Gwen doesn't get a lot of story, even though she's fantastic in all the, the areas of the film that she's in. And I like that she's not necessarily a romantic interest so much as just like 
they become friends and equals and with with the hint that they can mm -hmm. have a romance later on you know obviously they're saving a lot for the sequels and stuff just the fact that this movie exists is like a, a an achievement you know just because of how hugely ambitious it is um I think one story nitpick I can make, just speaking purely as a storyboard artist, is that the quantum super collider action sequence that, that is in the first act is very similar to the same action sequence at the very end in the same super collider. So, it, you know, they try to press the button, they try to put the goober in the thing, the thing mm -hmm. blows up, we see all the wreckage. So some of that imagery is oh. repeated. And so, like, it's not quite as... You know, that's that's one thing that I felt when, when it blows up the second time is like, I've seen this already. And the movie's done so much heavy lifting by this point that it's kind of like, obviously you forgive it. It's so cool just to see Miles Morales have his stab at the exact same problem, but this time he does it as a fully realized Spider-Man saves the day, which is, you know, it's great. But like sometimes I, you know, I look at it and I think, okay, there's a bit of deja vu visually, well, of like certain motifs, you know, over and over again. So that's one thing. I think that comes down to a point. Peter Ramsey said himself, like quite late in the day, they they started to realise that they didn't really have a third, like a third act. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that was like in. It must have been mm. pre-production, but like he had to get back to he 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 like went to the storyboards as well. And was like, yeah, we kind of really need to work yeah. this I mean, out. I, so maybe I'm not saying that is definitely, but. Maybe that could be why it kind of does have that re repetitive motif. Yeah, I mean, like, consequently, you know, um, they really had to make the ending be an emotional ending about Miles and his father mm. and about him mastering himself and actually being able to defeat Peter Parker in a, in a, in a combat exchange to make sure that he goes into the portal yeah. and, and, you know, completes that arc. And actually, like, you know, really what how they get away with it is that is that the ending is so psychedelic it, it, basically they throw all the rules out visually and just make it yeah. it's basically just <laughs> a, a, a virtuoso tour de force of like abstract expressionism in in, in animation form like the, the, <laughs> the amount of intense color and the and and and, and sort of uh, cosmic sort of visual abstraction is just so it's 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 auteurish almost you know it's like you, you i think they joke in the commentary that like they only got away with it because they'd gotten so far into the schedule that no one could stop them because they had to release the movie in like five months so it's like okay we're gonna do this we're gonna go <laughs> broke and they made it look amazing and um weirdly what you know what peter ramsey's probably alluding to is that this movie is so sophisticated and so truthful in its emotions that you actually don't notice that it's a very standard superhero plot i don't mean story i mean plot in that like there's a goober i mean it's even a joke in the movie that, that there's always yeah, yeah. A, a, a a key or a, a like a, a button or a thing like it's like chekhov's this that you have to go and, and fix and there's always some mcguffin the super collider is just a mcguffin that is the excuse for all the spider-men to show up and give miles his his amazing awakening um so so you you're actually watching a very traditional superhero plot it's just mm -hmm. not paint by numbers it's it's paint ad infinitum you know what i mean it's 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 this incredible <laughs> subversion of everything we've come to expect and so this brings me really nicely to the thing that i'm, I'm most sort of hyped about when it comes to this movie which is that you know i mean it it has not escaped you know anyone's attention that that, that this movie is not lazy like like you can call this movie many things but it, one thing it's definitely not is lazy 
And one right. of the things that um, that uh, Christine Belson said um, was that uh, was that they wanted to like uh, uh, make Sony uh, Animation Studio uh, very filmmaker led. You know, more so than even studios that say they're filmmaker led. You know, when you think about Disney, Pixar, DreamWorks, they have what's called a house style. And uh, and a house style means like you know when you're watching a Pixar movie, there's a general like they can differ in slight yeah. visual styles, but but there's kind of a brand, especially with Disney. Like Disney has a definite brand, you know, with with a few outliers like Lilo and Stitch. And Lilo and Stitch actually um, it, uh, is 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 a good example of something that I love in Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse, which is that a Sony uh, decided to make a movie that is entirely its own style. You know, it's entirely brave and bold and making up new cinematic language. And and it, it's basically ushered in a new era for this studio of being like, do you know what? We are going to not have a house style. We're going to make movies that are going to be anything that they want to be. And we're going to push the envelope forward and we're going to give the, the mic to the filmmakers, to the artists. So, so there are a couple moments in this movie where as visually off the chain as it is, I love the fact that it is a movie that constantly, and I hit, here's the word I'm going to use, it blows up the story over and over and over again. I mean, like, they joke in the commentary that, you know, uh, all of the visuals they were doing would, like, cause massive headaches to uh, to Sony Imageworks, you know, like, time-lapse shots and things that are incredibly meticulous to animate. And, and they would joke, like, how do we break the pipes of how to make this movie? But really, I think that's an adage for the entire yeah. storytelling process, which is basically they just break everything. It's like this is the perfect example of if it ain't broke, break it. You know, Spider-Man uh -huh. is not broke. It's a formula that everyone knows works. So the temptation to be less than brilliant must be so strong. Like you can get away with it. It's Spider-Man. Just make him swim through the cities and fight a villain and fall in love with a girl. Yeah, you know, yeah. like that's basic Spider-Man. They've already, Sony already did that with the amazing Spider-Man. They they carted out the same old trick and it didn't work. So suddenly they had no reason not to go for fucking broke with it. And there are a couple moments where story-wise, the best the best way I can say it is that they they blow it up. They they, they mm -hmm. they're kamikaze style with it. Like so, okay, we're we're gonna have a story about about Peter Parker. Hey. Let's get um, half an hour in and kill Peter Parker. And then, you know. Yeah, and it's got that brilliant thing as well. Like, when it comes to the character of Pinhead and his arc. We'll tear your soul apart. One of those rare things you see in uh, cinema anyway is the villain with a believable and, like, kind of um, sympathetic goal. Is that, like, it's almost like Ed Harris in... The Rock, where you understand the reason why he wants mm. to do what he wants to do, but it's the way in which he goes about yeah. it that is, and obviously he like, like you can sympathise with the fact that yeah, if you're in his position, you 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 would want your family, yeah. but but obviously the the way he goes about it and his like his all his mm. need to want to kill Spider Man as well, kind of. And obviously he's the perfect inverse of Miles Morales, which is Miles Morales gains a family and strengthens the bonds of his family. Yeah. And Fisk is doomed to lose his family over and over and over again, as evidenced by yeah. that ending where all the multiple versions of his wife and son see him and also reject him. He gets like super rejected yeah. on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, 
on an interstellar scale. But um, um, yeah, yeah. and Leah Schreiber does a really good job of humanizing such a like a stylized character. He looks like a character from Belleville Rendezvous. Like he's like this giant black hole of a character with this floating yeah, yeah. head, you know. Um, and uh, um, one of the things I love about that moment where his family shows up is that one of the versions of his son has red glasses, suggesting that there's an alternate universe where Daredevil is his son. Um, which I think is really oh, amazing. Cool. It's a really great deep cut. But um, what's interesting about blowing up the plot is I, I mentioned Lilo and Stitch. Um, there's a scene in Lilo and Stitch. I don't know if you've watched it. Have you seen it? I've watched it fairly recently because I have a small chair. Exactly. Well, I was thinking, like, <laughs> as a parent, that would probably wreck you too, mate. But um, uh, I was introduced to it only like a couple of years ago. And I, I really had, like, it, it was part of my Disney dead spot. You know what I mean? And so I watched it and. Um, and uh, uh, there's a moment at the end of the second act where the filmmakers, uh, it's already a quirky movie. There's already like a bunch of left field choices in it. There's like, it's a different style. The main character's weird. The two main characters are similar as opposed to different. It's like a, a kindred spirits against the world type story. And there's all yeah. these random things like it's set in Hawaii, there's surfing, it's, there's aliens, it's, it's, it's a total mishmash. It's like the exact opposite of a Disney movie, which is why it's so successful. But there's a moment at the very uh, end of the second act of Lilo and Stitch where the filmmakers consciously take a total left turn, which is like the two aliens who have been tasked with catching Stitch get fired and because they get fired, yeah. they're like, fuck it, let's just go in all guns blazing. And they decimate <laughs> the house. Do you remember that scene? And it's so yeah, funny yeah, yeah. because basically they just blow the whole plot up. Like, you know, you think that this is going to be a bunch of characters have a bunch of set agendas and those agendas are going to stay the whole way through the film. But what they did was they threw a spanner in the works and consequently you end up with one of the maddest and most entertaining scenes where, you know, Lilo's on the phone to the... Uh, to the uh, to the uh, a child services person being like, oh, it's okay, my dog found the chainsaw and then like hangs up the phone and it just like, <laughs> the whole house goes up and, it, and just the idea of having like these alien characters now that they no longer have any accountability are literally firing laser beams at a freaking child. It's, it's so, you know, unexpected. And that happens in Spider-Verse multiple times, no more so than when they destroy Aunt May's house. Like you, you've had the reveal of who Uncle Aaron is and then they breathlessly go from that revelation to an entire action scene with all of the uh, spider people against like a, a, a rogues gallery of Spider-Man villains. And they just destroy Aunt May's whole house. Everything goes up it, and, and it's, it's chaotic, but it's, but it's brilliant. And, and I love that because the one thing that is, is, is terribly... Is terribly irritating about modern mainstream animation is how formulaic it is. You know, and this yep. movie really defies the formula. Well, there's a perfect Nick Cage line as well before that fight in shoes where he says, We don't pick the ballroom, we just dance. Yeah. Like when Aunt May's asking them not to destroy the house. Yeah, it's so good. And and I love that it's a movie that keeps you on your toes like that. And it kind of like cuts out all the fat. Um, this is a good opportunity to segue into what I think we should end on when it comes to talking about what I like about the story, which is Cage himself. Yeah, yeah. You know, let, let, I'm, I'm going to give a bit, of, a, a bit of time to Spider-Man Noir because one of the things <laughs> that you have with a movie like this where they're constantly reinventing the plot and going against your expectations is that they, they're juggling an awful lot of balls. You know, it's Miles' mm -hmm. story, it's Peter Parker's story, and then there's a bunch of ancillary characters. So Spider-Man Noir is close to the very back of characters who get screen time. You know, like I said, it's only five and a half minutes. 
And so, so one of the things I like the most is that even though it's an ensemble piece with so many moving parts, they managed to give each spider person a tiny arc. And he's yeah, different. and his, his his arc like um whether it's like the small things like the thing with the Rubik's mm. cube. This is purple now, blue now. I think it's like really beautiful. Where he's like, I, I, I don't quite understand this, and I'm going to take it with me. Yeah, and then by the end, we just get like that little visual thing when we kind of visit all of them that he's done it. Yeah, and his his closing line to all of them as well because he's like. Somebody who like probably the most like uh, I don't know not tortured past of all of them, but he's like there he's in the, the most 90s. It's 1933, and I'm a private eye. I like to drink egg creams and I like to fight Nazis a lot. He fights Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> he, he 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 lets sig he lets matches go down to his fingertips just so he can feel something. Sometimes I let matches burn down to my fingertips just to feel something, anything. Oh. And um, uh, so he's kind of like the most grim and brutal version of the, that character. And I love that his arc is, um, you know, like such precious real estate, like such little amount of time is dedicated mm -hmm. to these smaller characters. But if you look at, um, you know, he, he cares for Kimiko Glenn's Spider-Girl, yeah. uh, who loses her, her mech suit, uh, the, the, like the one casualty in the final action scene. When you look at that moment where he comforts her, he puts his hand on her shoulder, it's such a beautiful line de yeah. delivery from Cage, but also it feeds into the very end of his arc, which is his arc is basically as simple as going from saying that he doesn't feel anything to just saying, I love you all. And it's such yeah. a good Cage performance. And it's, you know how you um, have this thing in your show, which is that you, you ask, does Nick Cage have bad hair? Does Nick Cage do a funny voice and does Nick Cage freak out, right? This one fails all of them. <laughs> but it doesn't. It's like it, it fails all of them and yet it's not a bad Cage performance. It's actually a perfect Cage performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because he's restrained, because he, you, know, you never see his face. It's all about his, his, his line delivery and he manages to be super subtle and super affecting, you know? And, and it, 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 I think it's a perfect example of how if you were going to cast Nick Cage, you'd think, oh, I'm going to go get the full Cage. I'm going to get him to freak out. I'm going to get him to do his high-pitched, squealy voice. Um, whereas these guys were smart enough to be like, do you know what? I remember that Nick Cage is just a bloody good actor and I'm just going to give him yeah. something good to play with, even if it's just a tiny couple of lines. And, you know, he's one of the most emotional parts of the film for me. It's just him saying, I love you all to these people he's only just met. And he's just made a connection with these people and it's beautiful. Well, it's even down to the delivery of it where it's, I uh, love you all. I uh, love you all. There's like a pregnant pause in it, yeah. but like, Really like that, and uh, and it's no better shown than like obviously that's something that's really like gift and like kind of shared on Twitter quite a lot. Is like mm. you that is like if you type in uh into the Spider Verse, that comes up as one of the top ones, and it's like just sit with the closed captions on the bottom with the uh put in, and like I don't know, it's 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 got that resilience to want to say it, but then it's like. It's he's realizing it as well that he's got these feelings that through yeah. circumstances he manages to chart a full arc in a yeah. matter of lines, and that's quite a big achievement, you know. It's it's yeah, it's nearly as impressive as uh, Paulie's arc in Rocky Four with the robot, where it goes from resilient to want the robot, being flirtatious with the robot, falling out of love with the robot 
three scenes. Perfect. Done. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, well, I'm sensing a robot butler theme because there's absolutely a mech suit in this film. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, 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 that again, has got some real nice emotion to it. Is like so it, that that is her dad inside the mech suit right or is he the yeah it was yeah. it was the kind of consciousness of her dad and there's like it, again that as well has got a has got that thing of uh spider-man noir comes in as like a paternal figure for yeah. for I mean, um they managed to penny parker this bunch of disparate characters that are so tonally and stylistically different and yet managed to find a way to fit them all together like a really cool jigsaw puzzle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we, before before we start to wrap things up, we would be remiss not to talk about uh, the cameo from the man behind Marvel himself, Mr. Stan Lee. And what what did you make of like his his um his cameo in 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 this film? I'm going to miss him. Yeah. We were friends, you know. Can I return it if it doesn't fit? It always fits. Eventually. I think Stanley's cameo is pretty perfect. I think that they recorded several different options for cameos he could do. I think he was always going to be that guy who was in the store selling him the suit, but I think they gave him a couple of different joke lines, and I'm sure that there was a retrospective decision after Stanley passed because it was right before this movie came out I'm sure they made a decision okay we're going to go with the most poignant one which is you know obviously him saying that the suit always fits eventually and you know it, it, it manages to feel really really um apt and uh you know more meaningful yeah. than most Stanley cameos and uh this is also you know let's not forget Steve yeah. Ditko also died very recently uh before this film comes out too so it's like the two fathers of of Spider-Man had, had had gone right before this movie, which was like, you know, probably one of the best pieces of Spider-Man media well, to be made, you know? Um, and it's all on the back of their efforts. Um, but I think it's great. I mean, one fun little factoid about the production is that uh, Stan Lee yeah, makes yeah. multiple cameos throughout the movie as an extra in New York City, just because <laughs> so many animators just wanted to animate him. So they would put him in train cars and and on the subway and just like you know he he has his own multiverse. It could have been Stan Lee into the Stanleyverse because because there were there were quite a few of him, uh, um, too many in New York New York City for it to be just a coincidence. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> perfect. Um, well, that's yeah, and I think with Steve Ditko, like I think this is the first film really to use his like utilize his color palette i know there's like a like especially in the spider-man films we've never really yeah. seen it's kind of it's taken either a gritty edge or we've never seen that that burst of color that like a, a, a kind of a double page ditko spread would have and yeah like, that kind of like wow like i mean that's why like you know in in in, in the medium of cinema of live action it almost feels tried to try to replicate the style of a comic book i mean you know uh, I'm, I'm going on easy riders a raging podcast soon to discuss the movie thor by kenneth branner and like people even had a bit of an adverse reaction to kenneth branner doing a lot of dutch angles to try to evoke a kind of a more zany yeah. comic booky style in his in his movie and obviously we've talked about Ang Lee's hulk but um animation truly is the perfect medium for superheroes. I mean, first of all, you can get away with any amount of lunacy and people will accept it. But also, you know, like 
we talked about layout in the crews, the way they move the camera. Like this is a very cinematic movie. Uses yeah. very cinematic editing techniques. Uses very uh, um, cinematic language. The lighting. They often use a lot of the available light as opposed to sort of like artificial light. <laughs> they made it feel like an incredibly realistic, like immersive cinematic experience. But you're right. This is uh, like I mean, the best thing I can say about this movie is it feels like a love letter to Spider-Man. It feels like a love letter to superhero movies and comics. It feels like a love letter to animation, and it feels like a love letter to cinema. It manages to be all of those things successfully. Yeah. And um, it kind of reminds me of just talking about Steve Ditko and about like really taking that extra effort to, to, to honor the comics. This reminds me of when I first saw Sam Raimi's Spider-Man in the cinema. I was a teenager, I was in high school, and I didn't know a lot about Spider-Man. Like, you know, this was back before it was mainstream to be <laughs> like, to know everything about every yeah, yeah, single yeah. Marvel character, you know? This is before Wikipedia pages were sprouting <laughs> up to, so that everyone could become like an armchair expert about anything that had been announced on the news. You know, you just find out who the Eternals were and be like, oh, I know about the Eternals. Yeah, you, you just Wikipedia them yesterday. <laughs> and I count myself among them. Um, but I remember... Um, I was invited by my friend Callum, uh, who's a, a Canadian friend of mine um, in high school. He wanted to go see it, and I went to go see it with him. And I can remember having a good enough time with it. I thought it was all right, you know? And, you know, it's a long, far cry from what would end up being, like, the Marvel MCU, like, the deep cuts. Like, it's not a perfect adaptation of the comics. It's, you know, like, uh, Sam Raimi's clearly got a love of spider-man but he's also juggling with executive notes and people being like yeah we don't need to know all this like the, we don't need to have any deep cuts here just make him do the thing and, and, yeah. and make him wear the suit and you know green goblin doesn't look like green goblin and all this stuff but i remember walking out of the cinema with callum and being like oh, i'm not sure if i really like had a great time with that movie and callum said to me something that i'll always remember he said um yeah, it wasn't that great, but I've been waiting my whole life to see Spider-Man on wow. film, so I'll take it. Like, like I, I can remember, this is a time no one can remember anymore because geekdom has taken over the mm -hmm. world. You know, deep cuts have become the norm. And it, it was the first time I realized, oh, wait a minute, there are people who have been reading Spider-Man comics their whole lives. There are people who, who, for whom this character is a religion. And my friend was just like, hey, I'll take it because I'll take the scraps because I'm so desperate to see this character. You know, just seeing him on film gave him a rush, even if it wasn't a perfect adaptation. Just like seeing the X-Men probably gave people a rush, even though they were dressed in black leather and didn't yeah, yeah, yeah. like their comic book or cartoon counterparts. And so looking at Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, it's just such a monumental achievement because it manages to be a love letter to all of those things in symphony. And it gives people the perfect summation of everything that they've grown up with. If you love the comic books, you will be fed by this movie. If you love uh, superhero movies, you will be fed by this movie. If you love cinema, you'll be fed yeah. by this movie. If you love animation, you will be fed by this movie. This movie is just a fucking four-course meal of awesome. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, it, you are sated by the end of it. And it's one of those rare movies where, like, I love watching animated movies because I work in animation. This is a movie that makes me feel like a hack and like I'll never make a movie as great as this movie. Like it makes me both it, it makes me both motivated and demoralized at the same time, but also just incredibly grateful that this movie exists because this movie on every measurable metric is 
10 times better than it has any right to be, mm-hmm. you know, considering how hard it is to make an animated movie, how hard it is to adapt beloved source material, how hard it is just to, just to get anything made. But for some reason, the stars just aligned. The right people got the right opportunities and it was in the right medium at the right time and with the right hero at its center, Miles. Yeah, yeah. It just unlocked everything that Spider-Man is and made a man like me, who's like just like who was just like a casual lover of Spider-Man. I got Spider-Man, and I'll always understand what Spider-Man means because that movie so eloquently conveyed it to me. And it's also a great Nicolas Cage movie. So it's the goat, man. It's the goat. <laughs> it's a film I never knew I needed until I saw it, and I was like, Absolutely. this is a this is a massive bomb to like how I'm feeling. And there's a there's a couple of little factoids I wanted to throw up before we wrapped it up because yeah. I felt there's. There's no better place to share them. Uh, one is that Peter Ramsey obviously started his career as a storyboard artist, did a lot of live action. Uh, one of his credits that um, links him to Nicolas Cage, he did the storyboards for adaptation for Spike Jones. Yeah, so, so the, but besides other things, obviously had a close relationship with John Singleton um, creatively, mm. doing second unit for him. He did being John Malkovich, Fight Club, the uh, the storyboard. Incredible. And um, just a great little, um, listening to Rodney Rothman talk, he mentioned, um, you mentioned earlier about the kind of like Chekhov's gun like thing of it all. And it's yeah. kind of got that whole 24 hours and there's a joke made of it, of like the, mm. it's, it's always 24 hours. They had an idea for when they were in Aunt May's, like the Spidey cave. For mm. there to have been a, a um, Australian Spider-Man who was just like <laughs> really chipper, and like they do his origin, and it turns out that he had been there because he's from Australia. He had turned up a day before everyone else, and <laughs> then in front of everyone, he would have like just disintegrated and evaporated. <laughs> Which which would have like really upped the ante that oh we've actually got twenty four hours. They would have actually Bef- seen the, the 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 repercussions of the warping that was going yeah, on of the glitching yeah yeah and that was going to be and uh, apparently that would have been too traumatic for the kids man seeing Spider Man die twice. So uh, apparently like Rodney Rothman, he pitched it too late in the in proceedings. They were like we're not creating another asset this late in the day. And oh, the yeah. so many assets in this movie. Ridiculous. The one, the one person who had his back was, I think, Philip Lord. Uh, mm. who was like, Chris Lord was like, I love that because that sounds like it would like up, upset, like, do you know what I mean? Not, not upset people <laughs> in the thing, but like... A little like, subversive. Yeah, a, a nice said, subversive joke. who were okay with blowing it up. I mean, like, I think they even described, I think... Uh, uh, Paul Watling even described like you know the conversations they would have about who should we get to cast? What about Nick Cage? Oh, that'd be fucking weird. Let's do that. You know what I mean? Like they didn't care. They had a good like they thought what would make this movie cool. A big problem with animation is it's really hard to be cool, like mm-hmm. to be genuinely cool. Like, even like you know um, what do you call him? Uh, uh, Daniel Pemberton's amazing score. It fucking slaps. You know the yeah. the sunflower song that they wrote for the movie. You know like. The What's Up Danger, um, you well, know, obviously this, that iconic sequence, which is just a flawless piece of boarding and music. And it's just like, so much of this movie is just cool. Like, it, well, I'm just carried along by the euphoria of it being so bloody cool. Like, you know, just having like... Um, it's having, got that uh, great... Uh, 
having it's a got that great time lapse sequence in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's the soundtrack's banging. The characters feel real, and and all of that came from this sort of sense of like, hey, let's just not rest on our laurels. Let's be let's be crazy about this. And like you said, inviting in as many ideas as possible, including things that you think would would be terrifying. Like, hey, what if we mm. blew this up? Yeah. Well, it's got that thing that it's got the the score and it's got a soundtrack which like in that in today's like modern age you might get it with something that's like uh, a musical whether it's like a, a trolls world tour or something like that but yeah. for a film to have like some of the world's biggest artists at the time whether it's like a post malone yeah. or like a whole host of other rappers jaden smith producing tracks for your movie and it's like mm. it's and as you said, it slaps. Like you and, listen to and those... like you know, like you're talking about how rare it is to have a soundtrack like that in a movie, which is a very cinematic way to do animation. But let's not also forget, like um, this is a this is a who's who of black excellence. Yeah, you know, this is another thing that's very rare for a movie, let alone uh, an animated movie. Mm -hmm. You know, this this one once and for all proved that um, you know, along with something like Black Panther, that you could tell a story with with a bunch of black voices uh at the forefront and that could make you a ton of money you know and and uh hollywood as uh, brad bird once said i quote this uh, uh, an awful lot which is like brad bird described hollywood as a shark that eats money mm -hmm. and um and so the shark is now seeing that if it puts its uh resources into in, into representation that it will make money and so now we're going to see more of these imitators and um so it's like the industry is carrying on a pace in the same way it always did but demographically and in terms of the, the the voices now coming up to the surface in the creative teams like we are seeing a sea change that is going to create really exciting stories from now on about things that you know we just haven't seen before and uh i'm, I'm sure you agree with me that i can't wait to see that sea change happen and yeah i think representation across the board is something we need to see in in cinema and Heck, seeing Oscar Isaac show up in the sequel, you know what I mean? Give give, give that character who was in the credits thing like even more screen time, you know? Yeah. Think about the amount of people, like the young kids who come from demographics that don't get a lot of representation being just giddy at being able to go and buy a costume for Halloween and be that character. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Perfect. Well, David, let's, let's wrap things up on... Um this film because we could speak for hours and hours and hours and hours. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask like, what's your, like, what, what's your like, uh, final word on it? My final word on it is I think like I kind of peppered it throughout the conversation, but like this to me, like it's a film that speaks to me. I, I've kind of seen this at some really like, um, important moments in my life. Like, uh, mm. so, like, yeah, I, I, I saw it just after I'd had my son. Um, and it's kind of weird time in my life. I don't, I don't really talk about my personal life too much on the podcast, but I, don't, I, don't, I feel I feel free enough to say this. But like, I'm glad you feel in the same space. I'm here. <laughs> I, I I used to I used to like have to spend time a lot a, a lot of time with my uh, my ex. Like she was mm. my ex uh, around the time of him being born. And one of the things we would do a lot of the time is watch films and like uh, we, yeah. we we watch this and even then like it really it really destroyed me and like it's it's just great storytelling and i i think i really related to the character of like miles more than anything like uh, mm. in that fact that i've spent my life looking for male role models and kind of paternal figures mm. as somebody who's like dad left when he was young 
and like I, yeah i have a fantastic stepdad and stuff like that but like on like an emotional level this film just hits me on a real like deep personal level but yeah it just brings me so much joy like i can watch like i've watched, as i said i've watched it twice this week like today i noticed when the original peter parker's head goes into the like collider you get yeah. this amazing flash of all the faces of like the yeah. The, the 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 multiverse spider people and pigs and uh, and it's just it's it it's got something for everyone like and it just makes me feel joyful that if this is the future of not just animation but cinema that like joyful really is the word yeah I mean, it's euphoric mm-hmm. it's a euphoria visually thematically and story wise um and I'm so glad that it spoke to you in that way because it's like you know to to to, to you know, that's what Peter Ramsey was saying about the universality of what seems to be a very specific person's experience. Yeah. You know, um, you can learn through the eyes of someone who's lived a life you've not and and actually take something valuable from it, uh, having come from a completely different background yourself. And and to know that you have, uh, have, have been yearning for father figures in the same way, but also now you are a father figure as yeah. well. You know that movie maybe gives you some of the language that you didn't know you needed to be able to to tell someone how to be. Oh, definitely. You know, to yeah. be able to pass something on, and that's beautiful, man. I love that. Amazing, David. Uh, well, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure having you back on the podcast. Uh, where can people keep up to date with you? And you need to do something with uh, Disney Plus, David, because Disney Plus, David. Yeah. So, so for context, I um, <laughs> I'm about to start going back onto Disney Plus, David, which is. Uh, uh, just on Twitter, I've been doing these really long uh, review threads of classic Disney movies because I realized I hadn't watched all the Disney movies uh, in order before. So I just started doing it and writing threads about them. And uh, I just called them Disney Plus David um, on my Twitter handle, which is at the Rumble. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm about to get back onto it. But obviously, I've just finished working on uh, on Wendell and Wilde yep. on Netflix. And I've moved on to another Netflix production, which is uh, the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, uh, by Taika Waititi and so it's like the transition between those two being burnt out from the last job <laughs> in a great way but also then like having to segue into this new job I just haven't had any time to get back on the threads but I'm getting back to the point where I'm, my body is now no longer exhausted <laughs> um, I'm starting to feel happier about like where I am and be like okay yeah I can start thinking about that again but yeah I, um, uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun I, I've got to be honest with you mate half, half, half of my problem is that I'm looking down the barrel of like five of Disney's package movies, and they are they are quite hard to get through. Some of them, they're, mm-hmm. they're you know they're not Disney's best. They're, yes. they're, they're during the, the 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 era where they were cutting a lot of corners financially and making these sort of anthologies of what are essentially glorified uh, tunes, but basically shorts. You know, they're they're basically silly symphonies yeah. um, made into one thing. You know, like Fantasia, they are not, but. Um, <laughs> but they are worth reviewing, and I, I I am going to get to them. Three Caballeros is next, and I've got I've got people who who I know from our extended Netflix family who are like waiting with bated breath <laughs> for the Three Caballeros, and I'm like, oh god, I got to get on that. Well, <laughs> David, if I can watch two one one and a score to settle, I'm sure you can watch some uh, old school uh, old how, school how Disney trash. Are we that we got to do Spider Verse together? Because it's like you're so right. I watched the commentary last night. Woke up this morning, watched the movie again. Yeah, and I could happily end this podcast and put it back in, uh, like like just watch it a third time. It's that kind of movie, and those movies are rare. 
I, I'm such a fool that I don't own the Blu-ray, and especially now, like now knowing if that ever there's there was a that... movie that, that you should watch in oh, its purest, yeah. most gorgeous form, you know. Yeah. I mean, I've watched it in an IMAX cinema. It's uh, oh, it's like it's like it's like eating the best like candy in the world, like having it just like shoved down your throat, yeah, going, getting, <laughs> just just entering another another realm. But yeah, like. <laughs> This is perfect because on one hand I was like, oh my god, you're gonna do talk, talk about Spider Verse on another pod, but we just established that you could talk about this movie for way longer than we have about completely different aspects of the story. Yeah, that is what is so joyous about this film is again, rewatch after rewatch, there's something new. You can have a conversation, and that's the joy of conversations as well. You have a conversation mm -hmm. with one person, it's totally different to another person. Um, Again, David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about this fantastic film with me. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. I uh, always love uh, talking to you, and uh, uh, thanks so much for having me back. I mean, you, this is a this is a movie that has a sequel in the works. So I can only hope <laughs> that Cage is also a part of it still, because you know, um, uh, it seems like that joy is only set to continue. Yeah, my fingers are crossed. Even if he's not in there, I will be there first day. Absolutely. Uh, With your kid as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, it's been so good. I, I really love talking to you. All right, guys, let's do this one last time. That was my conversation with David Trumbull about the fantastic Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. You probably know the rest by now, but if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a shining five-star rating and review or head on over to any other podcast listening platform and do the same over there. If you happen to have a different opinion to David and myself, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can do that via email, which is cagedinpod at gmail.com or you can head on over to Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at cagedinpod. I implore you to follow David as well at D Rumble, where you can keep up to date with all the things he's doing with the world of animation, and you'll be able to see any time he guests on another fantastic podcast, such as Spotlight, Sudden Double Deep, and Easy Riders Raging Podcast. So guys, as always, I've been Petrus Pat Syllabus. I've been caged in. You've been amazing. Bye-bye. Hey, fellas. Wherever I go, the wind follows. And the wind, it smells like rain. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Copal Connections, A Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.